everybody and welcome to the summoning episode for season two of Good Omens. I'm Vero. And I'm Lena. And this is going to be incredibly long. So please strap in and let's get straight in. Grab a drink, grab a snack, have a comfy chair and a fuzzy blanket because... Oh, and tissues. <gasps> Wait, and tissues. I have all of those things. Except Same. for tissues. I don't need tissues. It's fine. I still have my trusty toilet paper roll. Uh, the longest tissue of the world. <laughs> the longest one of them all, but it does not last forever. Well, there's always a new one. But before we get into the episode itself, very last second of Good Omens, we need to say hello to our newest patrons. And we haven't done this in a while, but we have three new names to introduce and say very much thank you for uh, finding us on Patreon and uh, joining this community and really get the conversation going. Pretty incredible. And providing so many insights. Thank you very much. And this is a big welcome to all our new three heathens, Amy, Jessica and Eleanor. Whee! Okay, we are doing a very big celebration. Jazz hands. Jazz hands. Yeah, which you can't hear because my wristbands are being filtered out when I shake mm. them. <laughs> so because our numbers tell us that many people have listened to season two that probably have not listened to anything else that we have done, what is a summoning episode, you ask? Well, a summoning episode exists because sometimes we have problems pronouncing specific words. And Thank you. Summoning is a word that Vero had an issue with. I have my own words that I have issues with. And because summoning really didn't want to work for her, we ended up sticking with what she said instead, which was, no, summarizing <laughs> didn't work for her. See, you have infected me. And because yeah. summarizing didn't work for One Vero and now me, we have decided to stuck with summoning. So I we... was wondering where you were going with that. It was not deliberate. I'm sorry. And this is actually a perfect example of how this episode is going to go. There is a rough structure. We are drinking and this is going to be long. I think most of our summoning episodes are between two and four hours. So let's see if we top it. Hopefully not, because we also have our lives that we need to get back to at some point. And Vero is concussed. So. Also, you also, listeners, have your own lives that you might want to get back to <coughs> at some point. Anyway. Who has lives? Not us. Good. As Lena just said, we have a rough structure and normally we would be uh, taking shots after completing each segment because we are very smart. And it works so well. It works so well and there is a reason why our summoning episodes are so damn long. But today, due to my medical condition and due to the last experience that we had that was not, <laughs> that was, it got a little messy, not gonna lie. We have decided to stay away from hard alcohol. And it's so, just... so ominous. <laughs> Got a little messy. Listen. No, but we do have a rough structure. So first off, we're going to talk a bit about season two. We have a few rough bits that we want to focus on that either of us wanted to focus on that we said over the course of the season that we want to talk about. So we will just go into that. We will also be talking, of course, about the bonus material on Amazon. We will talk about our own stuff that we do, which is, for example, the British word of the episode or our questionnaire, which is still very short compared to what we did for Lucifer. But eh, eh. 
And of course, we will summon up the entire season and compare it with the previous one. And then we're going to make wild predictions for the future, which are going to be 120% accurate, obviously. Obviously. And at the very end, we will tell you about the future, our future, so that you know what you are getting into if you decide to stick with us. And if you manage to get through the entire episode. Yeah, and if you don't care, then you can just like check the time markers and be like, okay, I only need these bits. But our way of being is going to get worse the longer the episode is. So if you skip parts, it won't make sense. But let's get into the episode, Vero, shall we? This was the longest intro that we've ever recorded, I think. Oh yeah, that is fine. I mean, we also <laughs> talked for like half an hour before we even got started because uh, life. Life. We are going to start with a question that seemed to be sometimes a little bit easy and a little bit difficult. And I didn't want to go with the super obvious one. So for the favorite character, this is actually a question that took me the longest to figure out. How... Ever, I have ended up with the most obvious choice for myself and probably for this season. And it is Crowley. That is the obvious choice. Yes. Okay. I was waiting for a non-obvious. <laughs> this, the thing is, right, I tried really, really hard to find a non-obvious choice. You know what I expected for you? No, what did you expect? I thought you were going to go with Muriel. I considered Muriel, but there are certain things... They are a little bit too flat for me throughout the season. I enjoy moments. I really, really love their integration into the story and the potential that they bring as a character. But I was missing some of the emotional element in order for them to become my favorite character. So I had to go with the obvious because I just couldn't figure out because... You had no alternatives. No alternative at this point, no. The thing is, there is no way I'm disagreeing with you that the obvious and obviously right choice is Crowley. Crowley (laughs) steals this entire season, in my opinion. But I did not go with the obvious choice. My actual choice. Do you have a guess who might be my actual choice? I feel like it is incredibly obvious. Is it Mrs. Sandwich? Of course it's Mrs. Sandwich. Her sass, her style, her way with people, especially with Crowley. You're a good mm. lad. Neither. What make you? It is quite cute. I'm not going to lie. That cemented her position for me. It started when she ordered coffee because her girls. And we were like, mm-hmm. hmm, is she a madam? Why are the girls her boobs? <laughs> and it ended with her calling Crowley a good lad. A good lad. I understand where you're coming from. To me, it had to be Crowley because watching his journey and his pain and joys and love and every single moment that he's going through this episode just sparked so much joy for me. And it was too strong of a contestant against everybody else for me. That's why. Like I said, there is no way I'm disagreeing. <laughs> with anything you say because yes in my heart I would have gone with Crowley but I was trying not to be so single-minded boring (laughs) then very deliberately did not say boring I noticed that you tried I mean come on choosing Crowley is never boring no matter the context true so obviously (sighs) the turnside the turnabout, the whatever the word is, I know English, is what was the worst character or who was the worst character? I have an obvious choice and I have an actual choice. And yet again, I am here very likely going with the obvious choice. Okay, now I'm curious. 
Is it my obvious choice again? There was a few options in this one. Not gonna lie, there was a few possibilities that could have made it over here just playing on uh, who caused certain events. But in the end, I had to go with who was the worst character to me specifically and not to everybody else. (laughs) That means it had to be Maggie. Maggie is the obvious choice, as it says in my notes. So once again, I have no disagreement with you. As I've written down, we might have even the same choice, but... She just didn't work out the way she should have for me. I think that they went into this season with Maggie in mind, being a certain way and bringing something to the table, and it just didn't work for me. And that's why. The option of the worst character of the season, because uh, bad, bad villain, villain, would be Metatron. And that is my actual choice. But, not gonna lie, only after reading the essay that we're going to talk about because before I read that it was a zero fill. Oh, boo. No, not he does not deserve to be your worst character even before reading the essay. And yes, we will talk more about the essay. Before I read the essay, I was very much in pain and I was very single perspective focused. And so when I made my notes the first time, he was my actual answer. I'm not going to hide that fact. Mm. But Mm. the reason why I went with Metatron in the end is because I think he is within the story the worst. Because Maggie just didn't work for us. Also, I needed Maggie in another category. And I didn't want to repeat myself. Mm -hmm. I am curious now. Yeah, I just didn't, I didn't feel for her, root for her. I didn't care about her. And And when I cared about her, it was in a negative way. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the problem. That's why worst for me, specifically for me. And in connotation to everybody else, she's not important. That's another thing. Maggie just isn't relevant enough. But now that I have some more perspective, I have a ginormous amount of hatred for the Metatron. And that is what gained him this position. (laughs) Big applause to the Metatron. Thank you very much. No, big applause to the essay for (laughs) deeply changing my opinion on several things. Love that. Okay, do you want to tell us about the next category? So instead of just talking about the character itself, we also need to talk about most and least character development. And I was not able to make up my mind for most character development. I have two names because for one, we see the entire development, but the other has a bigger development, but we don't see it. We only Mm. see the beginning and the end. And so this Mm. is why I have an impossible task with choosing, because what do you pick? The one that you witness more or the one that is bigger? Um, That is an interesting question. Thank you. I have two options, but three names. Okay, that is interesting. Hit me. The first option was kind of a joke. And that is, I guess I would say it's the most obvious to go with. And that is starting as Jim and ending as Gabriel. Okay, no, no. No. <laughs> Which would be the most developed character starting as a human and ends as an angel with starting a vast knowledge. As a, yeah, yeah. My white a... naked human ends as 
beautifully dressed, fully capable, all-knowing angel. Yay. Yeah. Awesome. Right? Mm -hmm. Right? So that's the two names. Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Do you want to give me one of your options there? I mean, I feel like I made it very obvious. So the one we see the character development is Nina. She starts out as a character we disliked just as much, in my case, as Maggie. You nearly as much. And in the end, we both were on Team Nina. And that alone gives a lot of character development, mm -hmm. just from our perspective. But I also feel that Nina actually grew throughout this season. She actually evolved. She actually changed. She actually became a better version of herself. Yeah, So I agree. She is on my list as well. But on the other hand, despite us not really witnessing the development, Belzebub is the one who goes through the bigger development compared to anyone. So do we think that Beelzebub goes through more development than Gabriel? Yes. Okay. <laughs> That's, to me, that is extremely obvious. Do you have anything to support that? <laughs> yes, because... <laughs> In my opinion, it is easier to fall from grace or to desert from heaven when you are as arrogant as Gabriel. Mm. And Beelzebub has never come across as arrogant, especially compared to the other Dukes of Hell. So Beelzebub was always within the system. They were not as judging or as higher than the highs and holier than thou. I don't know what the hell equivalent to that would be. <laughs> Unholier so, than basically, ye. and <laughs> they didn't have that, so they didn't have like the one step up mm. to leave the fold. And only once the apocalypse happens, or doesn't happen rather, there is the meeting up with Gabriel, and Gabriel is the one to suggest it. Belzebub made the we need to talk about this, but Gabriel is the one to suggest it. So Belzebub has like all these tiny, tiny steps that begin as leader of hell and end as being in love with Gabriel and leaving with him. Mm. And I feel like that arc is fuller and more complex than an arrogant angel getting what he wants. See, the thing is, I don't see Gabriel truly only as the arrogant angel who got what he wants, because in order for him to fall in love, which is what did happen, he needs to figure out that the his ego and his selfishness is not the only thing out there and that he can love something or someone else but himself and that it's not a bad thing, you know? So I feel like for somebody so self-obsessed as Gabriel was and so full of himself, to admit that there is somebody else he would put first and he would lose basically everything that he has for, that to me is a massive piece of development. Hmm. I have no counter-arguments. I still believe mine are better. <laughs> <laughs> listen, listen. As you have said before, love is selfless yeah. amongst other things. And that feels like a polar opposite of what Gabriel represented in season one. Yeah, good point, good point. The problem is like for me, for both of those, obviously, we don't see the evolution. Mm. We only see yeah. it very compressed. And we talked about this in the last episode. It is rushed. It does work because it makes sense. But it would have been nice to have a bit more time to sit with that. Yeah. But I am glad that we can agree on Nina because I went a little bit more into detail as of when certain steps mm. kind of changed for her because she does start off really angry and she is locked in an abusive relationship that, by the way, kudos, we never find out the gender of Leslie. Leslie? Lindsay? 
Lindsay, Lindsay, Lindsay. We never find out gender of Lindsay, so we don't need to know which way Nina is leading or not. So this is so rare and I love it. But through the season, it's not just her work. It's the circumstances that she is exposed to. The fact that she starts talking to Maggie a little bit more. And yes, that because she is put into certain situations because Crowley and Zerafel, it helps her in the end to get out of a abusey mindset a little bit. And the fact that it is not her doing the dumping it is not her doing the being left but she still is able to take it and realize that she can be better and she can have better and not ending up in a relationship by the end of the season yeah biggest step yeah it's something that i really really respect about her and it shows that she truly have changed because in the beginning she would just go with the flow she would just accept what is being done Done to to her her. what's happening around her yeah so this is why nina and i love that we basically chose the same people even though with gabriel and beelzebub it was the opposite sides of the coin but it was the same coin absolutely Also, to me, like, character development does not only mean that you actively influence your surroundings and thus you change, but also being able basically to roll with the punches. And Nina Mm -hmm. is a perfect example when it comes to rolling with the punches and still growing. Yeah, very, very, very happy that we got to see that. So... I said I needed Maggie for another slot, which is why I couldn't put her into the worst character. So very obviously, she is my one and only name for least character development. Mm. Argue your reasons. Tell me why. I honestly don't think that she has changed at all when you compare episode one and episode six. The only thing that has changed is that she now knows the supernatural exists. And that's it. Well, she seems to have a little bit of a better grasp on her life by the end of it. But that is, I agree that's not that much of a difference yep, so I have somebody else though oh okay who you got did you go with Michael I, I did go with Michael yeah <laughs> I did consider both Dagon or Michael mm. but they don't have enough screen time for me to be relevant sorry to me Dagon didn't get absolutely enough screen time for me to even think of the possibility to include him but Michael Michael starts off as a calculating overachiever with self obsession and grandstanding yes grandstanding is a good addition to that this is list the of word words. for michael but he ends in the same spot yeah i have the authority no you don't <laughs> yes so he is slightly taken down a peg by the metatron but i don't think that's gonna affect michael at all he's just gonna go back it's the same in the beginning because basically michael is like oh in gabriel's absence i am the supreme archangel yuri goes like duty officer and it's exactly the same situation we have at the end yes yeah so you have no authority you have nothing yeah but you think you do yeah that's the thing with michael he is full-on convinced we've talked about this throughout the episodes that is a case with a lot of angels they are full-on convinced that they are correct and in position of power and they do have the power and they are the most important being in the universe self-obsessed self-loving self-righteous self-everything, self-loved. Nobody else loves them. Yeah, God love you because nobody else does. Well, That's a quote from The Knight's Tale. Um, Sorry, (laughs) completely different thing. Mm -hmm. So I don't disagree with your choice, but Maggie got on my nerves so much that I needed to have her in this segment. Mm, That's fair enough. I had her in a different place. I am glad that we have chosen her collectively for the worst character with the least development. (laughs) 
I mean, it should not come as any surprise to anyone who's listened to these episodes, right? I am sorry if there are any Maggie apologists. Please do send us an essay because... You can change our mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Turns mm-hmm. out you can. Yeah. If you write extremely well and make really good points and it all works well while watching the episode again and being in pain and then I am willing to write another short essay myself to showcase that I had changed my mind. Mm. This is going to be long. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, luckily I've put together my new chair and it's actually very comfortable. So... My my butt's comfortable, my back's comfortable, and Just I your head will. Isn't. It's fine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My head is fine. The bleeding has stopped. Mm-hmm. Speaking of great working relationships, like your body and your brain, <laughs> I went a bit overboard. When it comes to the favorite relationship in the show. All right. Well, I think I have a bit of a weird one. Well. So I will let you start and we'll see. I'm going to read you my list. Okay. Oh, my God. One favorite relationship. She's yelling at me for saying that she can wait, have wait. two wait, British wait. words of uh, the, the the season. And then she chooses multiple relationships. It's going to make sense. It's going to make Ugh. sense and you're going to love it. Because Boo. the list goes as follows. Nina and her work. Shax and power. Crowley and his plans. Aziraphale and magic. The Bentley and music. Metatron and manipulation. Gabriel and his statue. Beldebub and sarcasm. So it's like one of those lists where you go, Doctor is to hospital. S. Basically. <laughs> yeah, fine. Whatever. So is that your favorite relationship? No, all of those kind of were in the running because I honestly think all of these are great. But Yes, they are. In my opinion, there is only one acceptable answer. And that is obviously Belzebub and Gabriel because it's the only healthy, happy relationship that we see over the entire season. Hmm. I really thought that you were going to say Gabriel and his statue. No, no, no. None of the <laughs> none of the things on my list were serious evaluations. But I'm very proud of my list. <laughs> Your list is very good. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. You look at me like I am very wrong in stating that there's only one acceptable answer for favorite relationship. I gave this a very hard thing. So what dysfunctional relationship did you decide was your favorite? This might surprise you. It's Crowley Obviously. and Jim. Gro- oh, what? See, this is what I was waiting for. It's a relationship that changes throughout the season and it changes mostly on Crowley's side. And obviously the reason behind that is Jim is very happy and single-minded and he doesn't really have a lot in his brain. But we have Crowley define this relationship by, at the beginning, uh, Crowley and Gabriel conflict. And this is something that we get to explore, I think, in episode five, is it? Where uh, Crowley comes up to uh, Jim's room and has a conversation he's about... drunk to have the courage to talk to him. Yes, that is episode yeah. five. So we get this whole conflict revealed and the way Crowley goes from, I am afraid that you are Gabriel who's trying to 
play trick on us to realizing that Jim is just whatever he is, that he is not the person that he saw last as Gabriel and ending up caring about him. And Jim being so blissfully childish in uh, his all of his relationship, basically. The dynamic between the two of them, it's just something really cool. And it gives us insight to mainly Crowley. And I suppose because Crowley is my favorite character, that's why I enjoyed it so much. But I suppose mm, we wouldn't fully classify theirs as relationship. Oh, it is a relationship, just not the romantic relationship that yeah. I ended up focusing on. Well, obviously. We could also say that it's an interaction, long-time interaction that goes throughout the season. Also, it is dysfunctional because there is so much trauma, there is so much past that informs their relationship. Just because one person doesn't remember the past does not nullify the Make existence of the past. Yeah. So yeah. I am not wrong when I asked which dysfunctional relationship did you pick? And I also think I'm not wrong in saying that the only wholesome answer to this question is... Beelzebub and Gabriel. Yeah, you are so not wrong. Your answer is more interesting than mine. <laughs> Unexpected, mine is maybe. happy. Happy Lena means happy podcast. It just means less hours of debate. Yeah, that's very, very true. That, that's the same thing. Depends on who edits <laughs> this episode, right? Okay. This concludes the standard categories that we talk about after every season. If you listen to others of our material, these five positions are always talked about. This time I also want to talk about some other things. One of the things I want to talk about is the levels of angels and their positions. So okay. those of you wonderful people who listened to our Lucifer content and who are our patrons of Believer Statues or Higher might know some of this. Everyone else won't. So Vero, Good luck. let's see how much you remember. And if any of this Very rings little. a bell. Because angels, not really that much defined in the actual scripture texts, if you remember that. I do remember that. Because the only name of an angel that actually like properly gets dropped as an archangel is Michael. And Gabriel is like sometimes inferred to be an archangel, but officially he's not quite. And la 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 la. So there's a lot of chaos there. But when it comes to the hierarchy of angels, Angels. There's one name that basically made the whole thing happen that nowadays is used in most pop culture and more or less religious context. And that dude was Pseudo-Dionysus the Areopagite in the 5th or 6th century. And you should remember his name because I talked about him in Lucifer quite a bit. You can barely pronounce his name. How am I supposed to remember it? Pseudo-Dionysus. Pseudo-Dionysus. Yes. So it's like Dionysus, but, but pseudo. Exactly. Like a fake Dionysus. Yes. Okay. I totally remember him. You don't, okay. He wrote a book <laughs> called De Colesti Hierarchia, which is Latin for On Celestial Hierarchy. And he describes nine levels of the spiritual beings, and those are grouped into three orders. So three by three. Haha. <laughs> the highest order are the seraphim, the cherubim, and the thrones. So I want to talk about those in a bit more detail because it's going to be relevant at the moment. Seraphim. 
taking his cue as well from writings in the rabbinic tradition, so Jewish, we get an etymology for the seraphim as those who kindle or make hot. The name seraphim clearly indicates their ceaseless and eternal revolution about divine principles, their heat and keenness, the exuberance of their intense, perpetual, tireless activity, and their elevative and energetic assimilation of those below, kindling them and firing them to their own heat and wholly purifying them by a burning and all-consuming flame and by the unhidden, unquenchable, changeless, radiant and enlightening power, dispelling and destroying the shadows of darkness. This is the highest order. This is the seraphim. Mm. Thomas Aquinas offers us another description of the nature of the seraphim. The name seraphim does not come from charity only. Remember, charity is like super important for Christians. But from the excess of charity expressed by the word ardor or fire. Hence, Dionysus expounds the name seraphim according to the properties of fire containing excess of heat. Now in fire, we may consider three things. First, the movement, which is upwards and continuous. This signifies that they are born inflexibly towards God, because obviously God is the one thing above them. Secondly, the active force, which is heat, which is not found in fire simply, but exists with a certain sharpness as being of most penetrating action and reaching even to the smallest things. And as it were, with super abundant fervor, whereby it signified in the actions of these angels, exercised powerfully upon those who are subject to them, so everyone below them, rousing them to a like fervor and cleansing them wholly by their heat. And thirdly, we consider in fire the quality of clarity, of brightness, which signifies that these angels have in themselves an inextinguishable light and that they also perfectly enlighten others. I feel like that sounds like Crowley. Exactly. That is exactly my point. Because next up, I'm going to talk about the cherubim, the level right below them. The numerous depictions of the cherubim assign them to many different roles, such as protecting the entrance of the Garden of Eden. Ezekiel initially describes the tetramorph cherubim as having the face of a man, a lion, an ox, and of an eagle. According to Thomas Aquinas, the cherubim are characterized by knowledge, in contrast to seraphim, who are characterized by their burning love to God. Oh my God, this is literally Crowley and Israfel. Exactly. Fucking-zackly. Okay, now I'm getting emotional, babies. And this is why I put this lengthy text in there. Because this is, seriously, this is just straight up copy-pasted from fucking Wikipedia. Mm. And this is straight up Crowley and Israfel. Because the burning love to God simply turns into the burning love for Israfel once Crowley cannot love God anymore. That makes so much sense. And the burning love period, yeah. it feels like he is the sun that shines upon Israfel. The rising up of others around him, the positive effect that he has. Yeah, and this explains why he's always, for the lack of a better word, so good, as Israfel tells him. Because he 
brings out the best in people. He is there to bring the best out in Zrafel. And oh my God, this breaks my heart all over again about the finale as well, because now they're going to be without <laughs> each other and it's not going to work. And he's not going to have anybody to shine his light upon and he's going to be alone. And I hate that. I finally made her emotional. I'm not crying though. Not yet. And so I want to include the short explanation what a throne is as well, because it is the third of the highest order. And because once you hear that, it makes sense to me that neither Crowley nor Aziraphale can be a throne. The thrones, also known as the Ophanim, are creatures that function as the actual chariots of God driven by the cherubs. They are characterized by peace and submission. God rests upon them. Thrones are depicted as great wheels containing many eyes and reside in the area of the cosmos where material form begins to take shape. They chant glorious to God and remain forever in his presence. They mete out divine justice and maintain the cosmic harmony of all universal laws. I actually think the Metatron might be a throne. Mm, which would mean that the Metatron is below Azrafel and Crowley. Before they became who they are now. Yeah. So that's how I see it. That actually might work because if you think about it, he is there to act on God's The will. universal laws. Yeah. He's the cap. He's the police officer. Yes. He's the real asshole, the fake authority. And, you know, that's why we hate him, among yeah. other things. And so the dominions, which are also being mentioned, I didn't find anything like relevant or explanatory about them. But they make up the middle order together with the virtues and the powers. And the lowest order are the principalities, the archangels and the angels. The fact that the archangels are... The so low order. Yes. It's funny to me. But, I mean, they're soldiers technically, right? Basically, yeah. They are not normal soldiers. They are uh, generals, basically. Yes, but they are They are the only army. above angels. They are only yeah. above the angels and above nothing else. And angels are just foot soldiers. Exactly. Angels are people so, like Muriel. Yeah. People who actually run things and do things, the intellectual running of heaven have to be above it. Yeah. So yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Also, do we know how many of each of these orders would we have? No. Is there I a did chance not find, that there like, would you have, be... You have 10 seraphim or something. Like, keep in mind, all of this, of course, is very much made up. And yeah, I also and... am pretty sure that neither Neil nor Terry were sitting down like, okay, we're going to take this as a seraphim and this as a cherubim or something. But the parallels are there. I'm sorry. The parallels are fucking there. And I'm very curious how much of this is accidental, how much of this is deliberate, and how much of that is just like, Vero and Lena, you have completely lost your mind. None of this makes any sense. <laughs> Listen, this sounds like a great question for Neil Gaiman. I will put it on the list. And also, dear listeners, if you listen through all of me prattling on about this and you have opinions when it comes to angels and the hierarchy of angels, please do let us know. Truly. I wonder, though, after all of this, and I know that you said this is all ideas and we don't really know where it's coming from, but if we think about it in the context of the show or mm -hmm. the books, the fact that Crowley was clearly very, very high up and he fell, is there somebody replacing him or on the same level of a position as he was where they're more as you say Crowley's on the same position and therefore he's not that missed or is it 
just an empty position now. I don't think it was necessary after the universe got created. It's very possible. I'm just wondering if there's anybody... Because if I think through the essay, there is a lot of mentioning about alone and lonely and um, Crowley being alone and doing every things angel by himself. Being and alone. every angel being alone. Having somebody else on the same level would probably create certain companionship. So I don't think that that is the case, but it would be, I think, interesting to explore. If there is somebody who really remembers Crowley from the time that he was up there and shared position with him or uh, I don't think there was anyone times with him because basically Crowley is the one who brought light into the darkness he is literally the one who says let there be light so dispelling the shadows of darkness as the seraphim is supposed to bringing burning fire even as a demon he still has the fucking fireball and everything but mm-hmm. once he has like kickstarted the universe I mean he's using the fucking crank that he has in the finale of season one I which, can't believe that! Which is a detail I missed when we watched it and only once I dared going into the internet because I had finally seen everything, I came across that and I was like, wait, what? But literally, after he starts cranking on the universe and looks at his creation, because I'm sorry, it's his creation. <laughs> I don't think he was needed anymore. So... After he fell, there is no need to fill his position because mm. the universe is already in existence and the way they designed it means it does not need any maintenance. I hear what you're saying and I offer he wasn't needed to fill that position. So a new position and lifetime was created for him in the ineffable plan and he <laughs> has fallen and created and continued on his own path which is now bringing light and love to the world and in this case to Zerophel and that's something that's going to be missed so you think Crowley falling is part of the ineffable plan yes 100% no doubt about it is still talking about the great plan not the ineffable plan that he does Okay, as long as we're in agreement that the ineffable plan is actually the good plan, the one that does not include the destruction of humanity and the universe as we know it, and does not plan eternal suffering for all of the characters that we love. That's a great plan, not the ineffable plan. Yes. Good. (laughs) Great. So, you mentioned the essay and that there's stuff being mentioned and explained in the essay. So I feel like we should talk about the essay. So our listeners who have not read the essay, and I love saying mm-hmm. the essay. The essay with a capital T and capital E. One of our wonderful patrons, Amy, wrote us in an extremely short amount of time, a very, very impressive piece. And she called it In Defense of the Xerophel. Because those of you who listened to all of the last six episodes, especially the last one, it does not come as a surprise that there was no space for any Aziraphale apologists when it came to the end. And we were very vocal about that. And we were also very vocal about that in the Discord. And word about that, or word of that reached Amy. And so she sat down, rewatched the end of episode six, I don't know how many times, and wrote us several pages. Mm-hmm. We're not going to read all of them out, but we're going to quote quite a bit of it. Because, I mean, now I can only speak for myself, but while this essay did not turn me into an Aziraphale apologist, it did turn me into an Aziraphale understander. And now I'm even sadder and more upset than I was before. To me, this essay gave me a lot of 
to think about. And I thought that I was able to look at things from Zarafal's perspective, but there was a several points that I have missed. And I am very grateful to Amy that she managed to point them out very skillfully and showed me the error of my ways. <laughs> This is why I love debating these TV shows or these stories and books and stuff like that, because we all go into these stories with different expectations and different like life experiences. And be it the two of us here or be it people outside of this podcasting room, we all bring something different and therefore we get to represent somebody else and we get to bring something new to the table. And I, for one, am very, very happy to read other people's opinions. And yes, we can debate them, but that doesn't take away from anybody else or my own feelings or my own experiences. Because exactly. in life... And in the world, there are many different people. And, you know, feel free to send us more essays because I <laughs> enjoyed that. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I also was very happy that I blocked off a section of my workday because, yes, I did end up sitting crying at my work desk Aww. while reading the essay and taking my notes on the essay. <laughs> So what yeah. I want to do is I basically want to go through the main points. I want to read some of the quotes and I want to talk about it with you, Vero. With me? Yes. So the first point that Amy made that I can't believe, honestly, that I hadn't seen this clearly, but she states it so much better than I ever could, is that heaven is basically an abuser and it keeps all of them isolated. And I quote, Heaven is a mess. Heaven is a whole goddamned character in this story and I'm here to pick her apart. The first thing we see chronologically from the point of view of the characters is Crowley creating the universe on behalf of heaven and Crowley is alone. Yes, they call out to Aziraphale who comes and offers assistance but Aziraphale was also alone before Crowley reaches out to them. But don't focus on them, focus on heaven and focus on solitude. Heaven is typically empty. Muriel works by themselves in an office for centuries and every once in a while someone wanders in to ask them something but otherwise alone. Heaven sent Aziraphale to earth to guard the gate of Eden alone. Alone. This is a pattern we see. The Metatron doesn't want to talk to Aziraphale and Crowley. The Metatron wants to talk to Aziraphale alone. Heaven and the Metatron, but honestly they're practically the same entity at this point, operates best when it can isolate its followers. This is because Heaven is extremely manipulative to the point of stepping into the role of abuser. Extremely well worded. This is so well put. Because the isolation factor is something that we did not talk about apart from Crowley being lonely. Mm -hmm. And Crowley wanting to have a companion. Yes. So yes, we only ever worked from the point of view of Crowley and never looked at the point of view of Azrafel because we always assumed that because Azrafel is part of Heaven he's a part yes he, it was heaven. a collective for us where everyone is doing their part but they're all together and literally the only angels that we see not utterly alone are Michael and Uriel in this season because they are constantly at each other's side because Uriel doesn't trust Michael well is it because he do doesn't trust Michael or is it because Michael and Uriel just work as best as a team no I honestly think it is because Michael has aspirations of grandeur and oh Uriel is next to them making sure they at least keep using the right words mm -hmm. 
The isolation aspect is something that I completely disregarded when it came to Aziraphale. And this is a big point. Evolution of oneself is incredibly hard when you are alone. Because you don't have any feedback. You have no way of comparing what you do, what you consider right, good or wrong or anything. And so the only values and guidelines basically that Aziraphale has are the ones that have been like inserted into his brain. And Crowley from the beginning on was different by asking questions and while still being alone he goes through a lot more of experiences and so this isolation thing is something that I completely disregarded and I Mm. now kind of want to go through a rewatch of both seasons and keep this in mind Mm. because to me this is extremely obvious now (laughs) it's like one of those things where you can't see it until you see it and you can't unsee it yeah it's, it's like shattered and now it's constantly there The next thing or the next point that Amy makes in the essay that I want to quote is that Aziraphale is basically a closeted individual, which it's not as surprising, but the way she phrases it is amazing. Because I quote, There are obviously a lot of reasons that people are in the closet, but a couple that hit particularly close to home here are fear of losing your blood family and religious persecution. Aziraphale doesn't have the first from a human perspective, but for someone who has been on Earth since the very beginning, you have to imagine that they might view heaven, God, and all associated as family, as that's where they're from. And I actually think that heaven and the other angels are Aziraphale's family. Like, I see yeah. them as an actual family mm-hmm. because they were all created together. And while they are not related by body and blood because they don't have body and blood, they are related as part of being in creation in this point of time, before the beginning of time, basically. And the religious persecution within a setting of heaven and hell and angels and demons also makes a lot of sense. So yeah. while Aziraphale obviously is described as a queer person, like, it is in the fucking book the fucking board gives gives us like the first three things people notice about Aziraphale is like he uh, talks funny he is British and also he's queerer than something something like it's made incredibly explicit so while this is not something I went like oh of course I wanted to double down on this because this leads into the next point that she makes that this is a queer love story and we talked about this on another level but the point that Amy makes here is something that we haven't talked about and that is the parallel between queer love as humans and the forbidden love between angels and demons Mm. because it's the wrong thing and I quote it's a queer love story not just because the actors who play them happen to be male and they present as male in most of the show but because Aziraphale isn't supposed to love Crowley to heaven it's wrong to heaven it's the worst thing they could possibly do and heaven like most abusers doesn't want to let go of someone they've got a hold of and Aziraphale who was raised to believe that heaven is the good one that they want what's best for everyone can't see yet that they're lying and this is where the need comes from that Crowley needs to be an angel again that's the problem this is why I was so upset with Aziraphale's obsession that Crowley needs to be an angel again it's not because a demon is bad which is also one of the beliefs and it's Mm -hmm. not because Crowley would be happier as an angel but it is because it's literally the only way that Aziraphale may be allowed to love Crowley yeah 
it's an interesting point and we're gonna be getting into this because as Amy continues but it's so obvious you might say is it I would argue at this point that Zrafel should or rather I wish Zrafel had a little bit more knowledge and a little bit more awareness of how abusive heaven is towards him and how bad it is for him and I understand where this whole point of view is coming from but as much as I understand Crowley has been there trying to show him for a very long time unfortunately as we know if you are in an abusive relationship the first step is to realizing that you're in an abusive relationship. Exactly. And because Israfel hasn't seemed to gone through that curtain, through that veil yet, this is what results in all of this other stuff. But I wish for him and I would hope for him that by now, and this is why I was so angry, because I would have hoped and I thought that he was through this, that he was on the other side by now. Unfortunately, it turns out he is not. I'm with you for the wishing that he's farther, but it makes sense to me that he's not. Because remember the interaction between Crowley and Jim when Crowley talks about the thing that I couldn't remember with the I was there when you told my best friend to shut his stupid mouth and die. Yeah. Aziraphale, as far as we know, has not been part of or present for the active cruelty of heaven. Everything that Aziraphale has experienced firsthand is something that can be explained away. And Crowley, in my opinion, out of a misguided want and need to protect Aziraphale, has Mm. not shared that. I think this specifically, yes, we know for a fact he didn't share, but I would say that he has shared other things I I don't I just don't think that just sharing and telling him is enough for Azrafel to break that glass. No, but it would be a that. first step. And the thing is, because Azrafel has never been there firsthand to experience Heaven's special brand of cruelty. Because like even the story of Job can be explained away. I suppose, yeah. Because angels just don't understand humans. They don't understand that the children you had before cannot be just replaced by new children and it's the same. They don't understand yeah. it. So they weren't malicious. They were just not knowing, you know? Mm. There's nothing okay. evil about it. All right, fine, whatever. And no, so you're right. You're you're right. I'm with I you think that in wishing biggest... for it. But it yeah. makes sense because be, because due to the fact that Crowley I think there was a mistake when Crowley got made and he was made with a question mark in his brain. I don't know if it was a mistake or again. Or part was of the ineffable, ineffable plan. plan. Yes. But I think Crowley was made different. Yeah. I think when Crowley got made, he had a question mark in his brain where every other angel has a a, a full stop. (laughs) Schwarze Punkte. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so Crowley was predestined to ask questions. And when you ask questions, you learn more and thus you know more. And once you know more and you experience more because asking questions puts you into more situations where you make more experiences, you have a bigger understanding. So I'm with you in the wanting, but now... I understand it. Like I said, not yet an apologist, but an understander. I get that. Like I think that my personal point of view here <laughs> is the reason why I was so angry was that I thought we were on the other side. I was full on convinced we were on the other side after the Armageddon. 
I thought that we were through this. And this felt like a step back in the character. So I understand now and I, I see where this is all coming from. Even the Armageddon can be explained away. I know that. I know that. But, but this is the thing. Where all my anger is coming from and where all of this is coming from is coming from the fact that I was convinced that we were through this, that we have walked through that arch and we have never looked back because Zrafel stopped giving any shits at all and we had this conversation multiple times. When was the moment Zrafel lost all his fucks? It is on the question list. <laughs> But did he? Is the thing now. And that is so the thing. He didn't. The thing is that we could, again, link it to a, an abusive relationship. Because the hope, the fact, the, the amount of people that get out and then they go back. But also, this is very important. Because now we can actually draw a parallel with Nina. Because in this relationship, Nina was left by Lindsay. Mm -hmm. Aziraphale was left by heaven. Aziraphale didn't leave heaven like Crowley left heaven. Aziraphale followed the rules as far as he felt comfortable with and as far as he could get away with it. And in the end, heaven rejected Aziraphale. But unlike Nina, he did not grow from it, realize that he was in a toxic relationship the way Nina does, but instead he still craves the acceptance from and by heaven over pretty much everything else. And this is also a point that Amy makes in the essay, that this craving of acceptance is something that is being used by the Metatron. And the way Amy talks about this situation made several things for me so incredibly clear. So I want to go into this for a moment. Because Aziraphale craves the acceptance of heaven. And the Metatron shows up acting as a savior while masquerading as human. Masquerading so much that no one recognizes him except Crowley. And to, just to give a bit more credence to the abuser or to the abusive dynamic. Uriel seems terrified of the Metatron when he asks, your grace, did we do anything wrong? So I quote from the essay, the Metatron comes into the shop to tell Michael that no, actually you can't just erase Xerophel from existence by editing the Book of Life and sets the tone for how this will go. The Metatron is dressed in human clothing, looks human, is holding a coffee from Nina's shop just like anyone else in the neighborhood might do and he immediately saves Xerophel Felt's entire being. If that's not manipulative, I don't know what possibly could be. It's enough even to make Crowley think that Aziraphale going off alone with the Metatron is fine. That is actually terrifying. And that's the thing because we were like our initial interpretation was that Crowley was so exhausted by all the happenings that he doesn't care in the moment. But I did a rewatch now with less anger and more pain. And yes, he is exhausted. But Crowley would never be so exhausted as to be willing to put Aziraphale into a dangerous situation. So he must have believed that the Metatron is not as dangerous and that Aziraphale also is more aware. I think it's both sides. He yeah. didn't think Aziraphale would fall as easily for the manipulation and also I don't think that he considered the Metatron as dangerous as he should have. Yeah. The two of them go off together and the Metatron, while giving off this false sense of security, of companionship. I mean, he literally tells Aziraphale to drink that he also used to consume back in his day. I know. The like, making them equal. Companionship. Yeah. Oh. 
like making it relatable Gross. like oh i also did it back in my day like mm. because this creates a massive difference between michael between gabriel oh, yes. and his treatment of azrafel and metatron and his treatment of azrafel even metatron in season 1 was also so dismissive of azrafel because he didn't realize how important important Israfel is. Because he didn't need him, because I'm pretty sure that Metatron didn't know that the first apocalypse wasn't gonna work, but now that the next step is the second coming, he needs Israfel. But so Metatron, while providing this false sense of security, he offers the acceptance of heaven and a future with Crowley. So Israfel doesn't have, he doesn't have to make a choice. He doesn't have to pick heaven over Crowley or Crowley over heaven. Only when he comes back into the bookshop and Crowley straight up refuses to become an angel again is Aziraphale forced to choose. And because Crowley is the one who makes him, who forces him to make a choice, Crowley is the bad guy. The thing is, in Aziraphale's head, Crowley has always been the bad guy. Not the bad guy is. that behaves good, but it makes it easier for Aziraphale to jump to the fact that Crowley is now bad. Mm, I would say it that way to me the way I understand this like this is a point that Amy makes in the mm -hmm. essay and I am very much on board on this because I'm pretty sure most of you people have had an argument with someone that you decently enough liked and at some point you realize that you're actually making an ass out of yourself but you're already very very angry and while you're already angry while you're already righteously in the position that you are 100% right and then you realize you maybe not there is no way that in this moment you're gonna be like, you know what? Actually, I just realized I'm an idiot. Not when there's already high stakes and emotions. You might, once you take like a step back and have a short second and able to collect yourself. But in the moment, having the ability to actually be the, wait a moment, I'm making an ass out of myself is super, super hard. And so that was how I saw it. Yeah. Because it's like, here I am, I'm giving you the perfect solution. Everything is gonna be perfect. Why are you being so difficult? If you were in the problem, there wouldn't be a problem. <sighs> Right? I don't like that interpretation. <laughs> I don't like it, but it rings true. And the reason why it's probably good is probably the same reason that I don't like it. And we now go into the next problem because now that Aziraphale has rejected Crowley, like the kiss happens and everything, now that Aziraphale has fully rejected Crowley, if Aziraphale now rejects heaven, he might end up with nothing. I... I Not that see he would. why he would think that, yes. Because for the first time, Crowley said, don't bother in reply to the I forgive you. I'm just... Ugh. Yeah, but that is why it made sense to me. Why I now understand. Because when you go through the script and mm -hmm. I went and I got the fucking transcript for this episode and I went through every single line. When you go through the script, because when you read it, it's not as emotional. It's not as painful. Still painful, but not as because you can't hear Michael Cheen say shit. <laughs> 
that it makes it a tiny bit better. <laughs> Then you realize it was, he did not make his choice before he came in, not towards the Metatron. He is still wavering, but the Metatron is behaving as if he had already made a choice. Yeah. Because that is there true. is only one acceptable outcome. And this is actually something that created a discourse between the two of us, because I believe that you yes. thought that he already did say yes. Yes. And I thought that he did not. Because um, I did not have why. space to listen and to pay attention to Israfel. Yeah. I did not have the capacity to watch Michael Sheen. And now that I have, I get double the pain. Congratulations. You Thank lose. you, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do get it. And Amy makes a few more really good points in this essay. And one of the conclusions that I drew from this essay because of her points is that Israfel loves humanity and Crowley loves what the two of them have. And so when you look at what happens after the Metatron basically answers the question for Israfel, the Book of Life is still a thing. There is still a danger to Crowley. And the moment that Israfel learns about the second coming, Israfel knows what the second coming is. Yeah, he better. He was the guardian of Eden. He was and has been as ineffective as sometimes he was the protector of Earth and humanity. And if there is the risk of the entire destruction of humanity and the destruction of Crowley, then I do see a reason for Israfel to go with the Metatron. And with that acceptance of an option, watching Michael Sheen in that elevator is much worse. So I wanna I wanna wrap the essay up with the conclusion quote that Amy gives mm -hmm. because I feel like that uh, sums up I think especially your feelings quite well. So no, I'm not saying that Aziraphale got it right. Aziraphale isn't perfect. I just think we're expecting them to have learned a lesson long ago that they were only just capable of truly understanding. It's what they do with the knowledge they have now that matters. Yep. And the toilet paper is coming out. The muting of a microphone has happened and the elephant making a noise kind of a thing out of a it's a thing we've talked about this listen to some of our old bonuses I'm pretty sure that we have talked about the trunk of an elephant I kept the one time I didn't mute myself in episode six in the bonus <laughs> when I went to <laughs> Yeah. When I blow my nose, it is literally um, an el an elephant trumpeting his uh, trunk. Trunk, yes. See, I love a lot of points in this essay, and I really love that Amy took that time and put it all into words with the help of Jess. But when all of this is said and done, you are correct. This is my statement at the end. This is pretty much describing my feelings. But the problem that I have with Israfel now is because we get to see all of the turmoil of emotions on Michael Sheen's face in the elevator. What rubs me the wrong way is the triumphant look of look at me, I'm this important that sometimes kind of squeezes through. I think see, that it's him yeah. trying to convince himself I that think he is the right person for the job. The Metatron. Hmm. I think, so, because, like I said, I went and got the transcript, I rewatched the episode, and then I matched lines to activities. <laughs> I did not get any real work done today, I'm sorry. 
I think you get my work done. I like it. I think. Um, let me go. Um, so the Metatron comes into the bookshop right after the kiss, right after the don't bother, mm. and he goes, "How did he take it?" And the script says, um, "Not well." Giggles like the the awkward, mm-hmm. and it continues. We know what giggles means. Yeah, but like giggling can be funny and can be awkward. Um, and it continues. La 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 la. Telling Azrafel that the bookshop is taken care of and anything you need to take with you. Nothing I can think of. And then they leave and. They go outside and the Metatron goes, well, I can't think of a better angel to wrap things up and to set into motion the next step in the great plan, which is capitalized in the Amazon captions, by the way, not in the notes, not in the transcript. And Aziraphale is, um, yes, you mentioned that. Can I know what it is? Well, it's something we need an angel of your talents to direct, an angel who is familiar with how they do things on Earth. Ah, we call it the second coming. Dramatic music. And I think Michael Sheen's face, when the Metatron says, we call it the second coming, is one of realization. Mm-hmm. That he I agree. needs to be strong now. That he needs to take this position and he needs to use it. And I think that the play of emotions we see on Michael Sheen's face when he steps into the elevator and then we see the light going mm-hmm. over his is him fighting with his belief that he's lost Crowley. His Even need, though Crowley is still there. His... Yeah, still. I don't think... I think someone else in... I think Eleanor in the Discord said that Aziraphale considers himself a bad angel. I think Aziraphale has a very low opinion of himself, Mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons why he keeps overcompensating. And so the reality that he has now lost Crowley is something that is very easily acceptable for him. So I think on his face we see his acceptance of the fact that he lost Crowley, his need to still make sure Crowley is safe, his realization what the next step in the great plan is, which is the second common, which is the annihilation of at least half of humankind Mm. because if my Bible knowledge doesn't desert me, the second coming is basically the purge. (laughs) Which is all the good go to heaven and all the bad go into forever damnation. And to be able to do both, protect humanity and protect Crowley, he needs to fool everyone in heaven. And to be able to fool all of them, he cannot be himself because he cannot be soft. He cannot be gay in the sense of enjoying life. And he cannot be too different. So he needs to rein in everything that basically makes him him. And I think that is what we see he's trying to project self-assurance. Listen, this feels like something that should go into the air. What do we think is going to happen in season three? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Because... I happen to disagree on some of these points. Good. And we're going to get into that in that a is totally fine. little bit. But before we talk about season three, so the essay is wrapped up. And I know we just talked a lot about the ending, but Vero, <laughs> how do you feel now, a week later, after we finally finished Good Omens? How do you feel about the ending? How do you feel about the season just by itself? How do you feel about this experience? How do you feel? Uh, I'm now suddenly lost for songs because I feel like How Do You Feel should be a song that I know and I want <laughs> to sing it and now I can't remember any of those. Um, I feel a little betrayed by Neil Gaiman. <laughs> That's because... what I said last episode. <laughs> <laughs> Being angry at Neil, yes. Well, I'm not angry. I'm just, I just feel betrayed. You're not angry, because... you're disappointed. Wow, yeah. mom. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. I did not expect half the shit and more 
that we have gotten, especially in the last season, especially in the last episode. And there are certain choices that were not my favorite, but knowing the ending and knowing where this is headed or where it ended, they do make much more sense. So I believe on a rewatch, I'm going to have very different opinions on certain details that I've seen. I want to make a suggestion here that we have not mm. talked about before. So mm. if we do get to season three, it's still going to be like quite a while. Like it still needs to be like scheduled and shot and then released. I feel before season three comes out, we should do a rewatch and then do, do one or two episodes. It doesn't have to be a special. Like I actually think we should do a regular episode or two where we talk about the season two or maybe mm. even season one and two, like a recap basically mm. and see how our opinions have changed. Yeah, over time and in context. Yeah, because I think once we have sat with this longer it's going to change again mm -hmm. we will feel different about things we will come across more point of views that might or might not influence us and so this is what I think would make sense yeah because I'm with you like, so many things are going to be different on a rewatch but while I did rewatch the last episode in parts today I am not ready to rewatch the entire thing yeah I want to but I don't have the space yet also my life is very busy right now, so I definitely don't have that space. <laughs> That's true. So I feel like we should put a pin in a review of what we've already covered. Not a go through it step by step, like I don't want to do a rewatch of the rewatch, but do a dedicated episode or two for the seasons. We will see when we get any source of information on season three mm. or in what form season three is going to present itself. Because Yes. we will get the ending of the story. We have talked about this and we know that Neil will give us the resolution. I said that once we watched the episode, I finally was allowed to go free into the internet. And the Good Omens fandom has surprised me in many ways. Most of them positive, I really have to say. Mm. The way the marketing was willing to go like the extra mile and the way they made this season there's like an extra level but the fandom also went the extra mile I feel there are myriads upon myriads of analyses blog posts Tumblr posts Twitter threads Instagram stories what the fuck else? I don't understand TikTok, but I'm sure there's TikToks that go through <laughs> the parallels and layers and hidden meanings and Easter eggs and everything. And I only have like scratched the very, very surface of it. And every tiny bit of detail that I come across currently makes it worse for me. <laughs> Like that it is exactly the same amount of time for the kiss and Crowley sitting in the car. That basically Ooh, he is replaying the kiss in his mind before he turns That's... off the music. <sighs> like, nope. Exactly. <laughs> mm -mm. There's so many theories out there that the Bentley playing the Nightingale song is Aziraphel reaching out to show Crowley he actually does love him. That I disagree with. Because the Bentley is 
closer connected with Aziraphale? No. There are so many theories that just make it worse, but it's also incredibly beautiful. Mm. Now that we've gone through the entire essay and everything, I already said I have a better understanding for everything because before the essay, I was too angry to <laughs> be even willing to try to understand. I am very much accepting now of the, the truth that Aziraphale is uh, stuck in a situation of his own making. <laughs> um, mm. And now he has to fight for Crowley and humanity. But I've already made that point. Well, he technically doesn't have to. Yes, he does. I think he does. I think there is no way to leave because the Book of Life is a threat that is still out there. And I think Metatron is actually someone who has the authority to use it. So I feel like there is no danger there that the Metatron got this involved. I still think that Aziraphale's understanding of right and wrong and good and bad is completely and fully and 100% external. I think he mm. only has the concepts of these things that he was taught by heaven. And only whenever he is confronted in a specific situation, like in Edinburgh with the surgery aspect of grave robbing, then he is able to see like the benefits of doing the wrong thing or talking about shades of grey and stuff like that. Only when he has mm. like a situation that is like straight up in his face. Yeah. I also think that in light of the Aziraphale considers himself a bad angel, I think that Aziraphale has an extreme need to spin everything that he does as good and right mm. to overcompensate, basically. And it doesn't matter if it's what he does or the people he keeps company with, you know? Gross. And I think that this is one of the reasons why he is so insistent about Crowley being good. Because if he kept company with someone bad, it would reconfirm his own self-image that he is bad. So he has to keep company with someone good. I don't think that he... No, I think that he truly thinks that Crowley is bad. I, oh, no, no. Oh, no. Absolutely not. He, like, he, he knows that Crowley is good, but... Every single time Crowley does something good, he feels the need to tell him, but you are good, which is the need that actually irks me. Yeah, but I think the need is for him and not for Crowley. I think he needs it. I feel like if he needs it, is for he he needs it for trying to convince Crowley. And that's where it is. That he's convincing yeah. himself. Yeah. Because once again, Aziraphale is not aware of the effect his words and actions have and his repeated insistence towards Crowley that demons are bad but Crowley is good is actually very harsh and cruel towards Crowley. Yeah, yeah, it but is. I think he's doing it because he needs it for himself. Because he is obsessed with getting acceptance from heaven. It doesn't justify it. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not justifying and explaining. Like, none of this is meant to justify. None of this. But because I feel like in the last episode, there was absolutely no space to even talk about Aziraphale's side of things. I'm, I'm now overcompensating. <laughs> that you are. <laughs> Already mentioned... The information that season one finale was apparently much more traumatizing for Crowley than we had realized. And also much more traumatizing for Crowley than it was for Aziraphale. Mm -hmm. I think when you like put the ones, what, what now both characters want, like what Aziraphale and Crowley wants. I think Aziraphale wants heaven to be good, to be truly good. He wants humanity to be saved and Crowley to be safe. But I don't think Aziraphale wants his own happiness his happiness would be the result of these three things. And I think Crowley, on the other hand, wants for once in his life to not lose what he had. That is interestingly put. I don't think that Zraphel wants heaven to be good because I believe that he 
thinks, he still thinks that heaven must be good. I think that we did not break through. Okay. We did not get on the other side of things. And he still believes that the best thing he can do for humanity and for heaven and for Crowley is go and lead heaven because heaven is inherently good. Angels might not be, not all of them anyway, but mm. heaven as an institution is good. We're going to see where that falls in the next season. But basically, I think the difference here is Israel's happiness is a consequence of something else. It's not his focus. Mm-hmm. And I think Crowley just wants to be happy and his yeah. happiness is not, for once not losing what he, what he had because I think that the nothing lasts forever was one Vegas. of the worst things that Aziraphel could have possibly said to him and finally something we can agree on and I think that that was the moment that yeah. Crowley knew it was done Yeah. if Aziraphel had not said that he would have I'm pretty have sure I've more. said that in the last episode but yes I agree with that fully and so Crowley now being alone is literally like his worst nightmare yeah so to wrap this all up I still want the husbands as endgame like this is still my hope <laughs> mm-hmm. but only if Israfel overcomes his dependency on heaven's approval <laughs> And also only if their relationship becomes less one-sided regarding everything. Because there is a lot of one-sidedness on many, many aspects. But I also now see one-sidedness when it comes to Aziraphale and not just when it comes to Crowley. Yeah. So, more nuances. (laughs) That was long. I'm sorry. If you heard uh, to wrap this up and thought this episode is over. No, 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 no. Think again. Wrap this position up that I called (laughs) the ending now that a week has passed. (laughs) But now we go into your segment that you told me to write down. Oh, yes. So we've mentioned this multiple times going through the season and I got very lucky in my skills to not have a lot to say to this. But unlike myself, Lena is quite incapable of avoiding spoilers. So in the next allotted time, we will be... (laughs) It's not that long. We will be talking about what did we know coming into this or what spoilers did we get and how it affected our viewing experience. Because... As you may have noticed, I am not 100% sure if we kept any of that in uh, the actual episode. Yeah, I kept we didn't, all of it. We didn't want to get into the fact that we've seen spoilers and which spoilers particularly we've seen because we weren't 100% sure until we finished the show what different types of connotations those spoilers could have had for certain outcomes. So... Should I get rid of the one thing that I learned now? No. Okay, tell me. As I kept in the last episode, Vero had one big spoiler, but only as an abstract. I had three spoilers, and especially the second one kept showing up. And so the first thing that I came across is that I knew that Metatron is there, and I knew that he was fully bodied. No! And oh no! Because you asked how it affected your experience, that was actually the one thing I cared about the least. Because in my brain, it didn't make a difference that he had a body or not. Like to me, it was a choice that usually he's ahead, <laughs> not anything else. Yeah, that else. is actually that is actually pretty interesting and and true. 
the oblivion made it better. I think the context in which that got posted by someone on Twitter was basically just like, oh, Doctor Who stuff. And it was like, master, yeah, master, master. Whatever. You know, like basically like the master works the earth or something. Um, but sadly it was the master, it was the Metatron. So, okay, that was fine. Like I was just like, because it was not like chronologically the first thing that I saw, but like... I'm starting with the least relevant one. Mm -hmm. But by that time, I had already been exposed to other things and I was pretty fed up. So I was like, whatever. (laughs) Okay, I'm deleting Twitter forever. Seriously, I just didn't open Twitter for like three weeks or something or two weeks. Yeah. And in the meantime, it ceased to be Twitter. Yeah, whatever. It's still going to be Twitter. We both talked about knowing about the kiss. So this is the one spoiler that you knew, but only as an abstract. Mm-hmm. I saw the leaked image because I managed to fucking log online when that picture was going around. Mm-hmm. I saw the picture. I have never seen the picture. Do you have the picture somewhere? No. I. D- do you really think I went and saved that? I don't know. And after I had seen the picture, I kept coming across posts that Neil had apparently asked people not to share it. But even with that, I repeatedly got exposed to it. So I saw it more than once. Mm. And there was a lot of like speculation about it, obviously. And everything that I saw that related to the kiss was positive. Mm -hmm. Every single interpretation that I came across, everything that made its way in front of my eyes led me to the belief that it was passionate. Because I think someone wrote it in a way that it was a natural progression of season one. Because Mm -hmm. you have the season one where Crowley pushes Aziraphale up the wall to shout at him. Mm -hmm. And basically it looked like a grabbing him and pulling him instead of pushing him. Uh So the way people apparently understood it and I accepted because I did like literally these are informations that burned into my retinas because I caught a half a second glimpse of a tweet was that this is a logical progression from season one. First he pushes him up against the wall and now he pulls him towards a kiss. (laughs) Yeah. So um, yeah, but you, you didn't even see the picture, right? I didn't even see the picture. I'm sorry. I I'm, I'm was kind of... You were trying, trying to, to find, find the picture. The I know. Picture. I can tell what you're doing. <laughs> From my face. What I saw was two things. I first saw a ski on a blue sky that was not tagged. I was aware that there was a leak. I was aware that Neil asked people not to share it. And I was aware that there was a problem and it was not supposed to be leaked. That's all I knew. I didn't know any details about that. And then I saw a ski that said, I completely understand why the kiss was such a huge spoiler (laughs) when it leaked a month before release. Mm -hmm. So there were no mentions of tagging. There were no mentions of shows or streaming service or anything. But obviously the only thing that have had leaked at that point that I knew about was Good Omens. And at that point I got really upset but I was like, because and not even at the fact that there is a kiss I got upset that people wouldn't fucking spoiler tag this because it, even though it doesn't mention anything, there were no other instances about 
any other shows that this could apply to. And especially if you were aware of the league, this was very telling. But even then, I managed to kind of suppress it and try to tell myself that this is not about good omens. But then I unfortunately swiped to the wrong side on my phone. And for some reason, this is a place where I would normally get suggestions for recommended articles and shit. And for some reason, my phone thought it was completely okay to put as a first article everything you need to know about the kiss on good omens, which was one of those stupid screen runs or something like that. And at that point, without seeing the actual picture, I knew for a fact that this indeed was good omens and that it was a kiss. But at that point, and I'm pretty sure I have said it in episodes before, after I found out, I didn't see it as a spoiler because to me, this is where the relationship was going. And I think because... I've had this concept of this is where it's logically going. I was completely unprepared and I knew it was going to happen. But watching the talk and watching it all downhill and with the knowledge that there was going to be a kiss, I realized very slowly that it was not going to be a good kiss. And it made it worse because it didn't catch me by surprise. I was watching all of that with the knowledge that there's going to be some sort of a not good connecting. And I honestly was furious. While you were talking, I have provided you with the picture. Okay. Oh my God, why? So... What happened was that Amazon released a composition of kisses from Amazon Prime shows. Oh, and this was in there. Seriously, that is. Yeah, I think how I'm it glad got that I'd... leaked. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually glad that I didn't see the picture. You can see that it's like it's too blurry to understand enough. Mm-hmm. It is very easily interpreted as passion. Mm-hmm. It fits the narrative of the parallel to season one when he grabs his lapel there. But what you just talked about. So this was obviously before the show came out this was a spoiler before anyone knew anything but we covered every episode week by week but everything came out at once the metatron spoiler happened to me after the show was out and the worst spoiler in quotation marks because it's not actually a spoiler but it's a misdirection i'm gonna say also happened after the show came out because i repeatedly came across things that led me to believe that the ineffable husbands went full canon and having seen the kiss It fed into my assumption. Interesting. And I know people who haven't listened to us before we did Good Omens might be surprised, but we have a lot of supernatural references when we talk about shit. What? And I honestly think that this is what people must have felt who fell off Supernatural and then saw on the internet that Destiel became canon and then went and watched the scene. Mm. Because yeah, it did go full canon and it ripped your (laughs) fucking heart out. Which is actually quite funny that you mentioned this because something that apparently is a common knowledge and I had no idea. Eric Kripke, who is the show or who was the showrunner of Supernatural, based Supernatural on Good Omens. That is news and to he, me. He has said that repeatedly and he has... What? Known, we know out. it is out there somewhere uh, where he talked about trying to reach Neil Gaiman and Neil Gaiman is aware of this connection. He is aware that Crowley in Supernatural is based on Crowley. (laughs) And the fact that... Is that the reason why I ship Crowley with Cass? (laughs) <laughs> because Cass is a zero fell and Crowley is Crowley? I don't know about that, but 
Listen, I don't see all the parallels, but apparently it is well known in the supernatural community that Kripke has based some of the base stuff on supernatural, on good omens, because he's loved it so much that he wanted to somehow use it. And that Neil is aware. Okay, let's not say he based it on it, because let's just say... He inspired. He in- yeah, okay, he was inspired yeah. by something. He was bits. inspired by. Okay. And uh, Neil is aware of this fact, and he has never actually made like a full conversation with, with Kripke. So uh, I don't know if... We're going to put it on the list. I would like to know what Neil actually thinks about that, because I'm sure there is some sort of uh, information out there about it. But I would love to know from him directly, from his mouth, out loud, into our microphone. Exactly. And uh, yeah, so I find it really funny that you talk about the parallel of uh, the ineffable husbands and Destiel going canon but not really because both yeah but no you're right both were absolutely right scenes and yes both made it canon but not in a way that we people who hadn't seen it would understand it when you tell them it became full canon also it makes sense to me then and i wonder if that is why crowley got that chair because crowley's and crowley's chair is the same and we've talked about it in season one when the chair Mm. was on screen. So I do wonder if that's the reason. If it's like a little homage and not to the character that was based on Crowley. That they kind of took something from him. I've never heard and of this, so I know nothing about it. It is a question that we could have or not. Yeah, I've already said I'm, I'm putting it on the list, but I don't know anything about this. So, um, yeah. But but I, I kind of don't want to repeat myself that this was like a parallel and it felt terrible. Like the, now the kind of yeah, the mental no, is no. kind of gone. So... <laughs> Um, Okay, so yeah, but that was all the spoilers for Mm me. There are a few tiny things that I want to mention or talk about. So obviously, there is a finale transcript that I put at the end of my notes. There's also the link if you want to read through the entire episode. They also have all the other episodes. So if you need transcripts, seems to be a good website, but I highly recommend ad blockers. Don't go onto that page without an ad blocker because it nearly didn't load with my ad blockers and that's always a bad sign. But it gives great transcripts. (laughs) So... Another thing I came across that I want to mention, remember when the poster for season two came out and everyone was like, oh, it's a heart. Mm-hmm. I saw that one because you shared it, right? Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, it's also a broken heart. So mm-hmm. they told us. They fucking told us from the beginning, which makes it so much worse. Mm-hmm. And the last thing is, so remember when I said last episode that there is no way in hell that the book is not significant, that Crowley gives Muriel? Of yes. course it is. Good. Because Good Omen Season 2 features the book The Crow Road as a significant element, with Gabriel reading the first line out loud. It holds thematic connections to the overall storyline and the character's experiences. The Crow Road explores themes of death, fate, morality, self-discovery, resonating with Aziraphale and Crowley's experiences in Good Omens. It also features a mystery that parallels Gabriel's arrival and memory loss in the series. The appearance of the Crow Road in Good Omen Season 2's ending, where Crowley gives it to Muriel, holds symbolic significance in relation to the overall storyline. It reflects the heartbreaking finale for Aziraphale and Crowley and delves into themes of unrequited love and defying societal norms. 
Also, apparently the parallel that I mentioned before between like Agnes and the grandma is not the burning at the stake, but the exploding part. Because the first line is oh. the, 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 it was the day my yeah. grandmother exploded and Agnes also yeah. blows up. So that's the yes. thingy that was the reference. So, yeah, because uh, the crow road apparently is a euphemism for dying. When you take the crow road, you die. Amazing. So yeah. great faith from Uriel. Amazing. Um, is there anything else in this segment that no. you want to get through? No. Okay. So that was just so. like the, the t- bits and pieces I came across. I was like, <laughs> suffer with me. Yes. Um, I am My very suffering. happy to live in my denial room, rev- reveling in denial. Mm-hmm. River in Africa and all that. I suggest you walk us through uh, the opening oh, and yes. I will walk us through the outros. I have a page for the opening because... Dude, I figured you would. <laughs> dude, so I went and I watched the bonus for the Easter eggs. I also went through all the Twitter threads that I had saved when the opening first was released and people were still having theories because those people really did go through frame by frame. I also went through all of my notes where I had watched the opening and made my own notes. And I even went on fucking YouTube. So while this is probably not complete, I think it's going to be a lot. It's definitely more than uh, anybody has ever bargained for. Ah, it's called a summoning episode. That's us. Exactly. In a nutshell. Welcome to summoning at the Apple of Truth. <laughs> the Apple of Truth does some summoning. We go into the opening and I am gonna run us through this. I did not take timestamps because some of these bits are literally in the same second. And mm-hmm. so it was impossible. So this is as chronological as I could make it. We start Xerophil Lands, Crowley crawls up. <laughs> oh my god, I saw somewhere that he changes it from Crawley to Crowley because of the crows that he turned the goats into. Because that <gasps> was the first positive interaction Xerophil had with him. And so he oh wants Xerophil to always remember him as Crowley. Yeah, that's bullshit. No, but it's adorable. No. You're a stone. Okay, so. <laughs> I'm stoned? Yes, you're also stoned. No, you're stone. Your no, heart is stone. So, blah, 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 blah. Aziraphale coming blah, down, blah, 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 Crowley blah. coming up. They walk next to each other and they enter a cave. And right there we see the fly. The fly is there from the very beginning. The fly flies up and lands on Crowley and it's there. And the fly obviously well, being important because it's the container that has Gabriel's memories. I wonder who saw it from the beginning as well. Hmm. But not in the opening <laughs> because we didn't watch the, not opening. In the opening. Then of no. course we have it's naked Gabriel with the box walking up. And then we have the the vast landscape. The light is coming through the sky, through the clouds, just like the light is coming through the clouds when God is talking to Job. There is one goat that has wings. It's basically half goat, half bird. Because, ha ha ha, that made no sense and no sound. Because the goats get turned into crows. So, hoo-hoo. Then, hey, wait, it got... What? No, crows. Mm -hmm. Yes, all your crows. Then we transition into the next scene. We have the red herrings barrel that has 
actual red herrings in the barrel. And we go through the graveyard and we see several gravestones and apparently all of the gravestones are written by Neil. There are several gravestones that you can make out. There is Everyday written on a gravestone. There is Jane Austen written on a gravestone that given the amount of parallels for this entire season and several specific scenes to exact specific Jane Austen novels or TV adaptations that Neil has said he took inspiration from word of God, makes a lot of sense. Also Jane Austen being referenced inside the show. Then there's one that says, here lies Adam. And of course, there is one that says, here lies the former shell of Beelzebub, which explains why the new face. (laughs) There is also the Edinburgh Castle in the background. So I would assume this counts as a count of the Edinburgh Castle. (laughs) Apparently, there is several hidden Gabriels in basically every scene. I did not manage to make every single one of them out, even though they get like little stars. But there are a lot of hidden Gabriels. Then there is the mausoleum in which Crowley did the getting big and small thing. Then we go down to the hell bridge thingy. And apparently Mm -hmm. there is an... There's a character that we met in the season one opening and he's trying to run away into the other direction, but he's being caught and then he's being dragged back. In the background, we see the hell spider from the Nazi torture scene. And also we see some office hell furniture in various places. We leave hell that also for some reason has a guillotine. I did not get any reference for that why we have a guillotine. Unless like the obvious because a guillotine is a torture murder implement. But okay. Then we leave hell. We go into the Blitz. We are now in London in the Blitz. There is of course the Stairway to Heaven posted. That is another Pressburger reference. Paul and Pressburger. If you don't know what I'm talking about, have you even been listening to us? We now have a mural in the queue as a white police person. Then we leave London outside. We start transitioning into more buildings and inside. Before we go into the building, in the background is a floating turnip. That is, of course, a reference to Israel's magic performance. We also get falling white rabbits, which I assume is also more magic. I'm also pretty sure that we now in the queue have the Shuhite. I forgot his name. Bildad or something. Bildad or the Shuhite. Yes. And Shoemaker and obstetrician. Exactly. I'm pretty sure he's also in the queue. Also, it's important to point out that all the faces of everyone in the queue are the faces of Michael Sheen and David Tennant. Not only in the queue. Every single character, apparently. In the uh, yeah, everyone you see in, have. in everyone you see in the opening is David Tennant and Michael Sheen, which is hilarious. Then we of course get the Ladies of Camelot poster, and once we have that, Ladies of Camelot also are in the queue. While the queue progresses onward, or the procession process, the procession progresses onward. However, you say that I don't know. There is a ginormous top hat in front, so the top hat might be either a reference to Edinburgh or Magic Show because we had various top hats. I don't know which one. We transition into the theatre, and there are tiny. Pl- on the back of the chairs. I did not manage to make out what is written on those plaques, but apparently Neil decided what would be written on them, like which names were being put there. So far, haven't found anything. If you can tell me what names, please let me know. Right when the magician Aziraphale with the beautiful blue magic cape makes his way onto the stage, we also have Seraquiel in the queue right behind Beelzebub. So, 
Magic Zerafel and Crowley open the curtains and we go into space and we meet the spaceman back from season one. We get a super short dance interlude, which given episode five makes a lot of sense why Zerafel and Crowley would be dancing. As the bonus material calls it, a short flirtation moment between the husbands. So yeah, in the background we get the Scottish Tartan Hills that also make an appearance in the show. If you pay a lot of attention, you can see that the writing on the airplane that crosses over is Thy Kingdom Airways. You know, like (laughs) Thy Kingdom Khan. (laughs) We have more buildings and... Oh no, sorry, I jumped over. While the husbands are dancing, there is a tiny planet that comes into existence between the two of them. (laughs) For some reason, it made me really sad. So the airplane moves over, the husbands are sitting on buildings and we have falling hearts because obviously making Nina and Maggie fall in love. The buildings are very obviously our buildings in Soho. There is very clear writing, give me coffee or give me death. And there's also a ginormous pile of records. Then we move over into more modern looking buildings and all of these are elevators to heaven and one of the elevators has a naked Gabriel with the box in it coming down. I missed that. Then there is a sign that literally says the second coming. So they told us right from the beginning. Then, of course, we transition over into the movie theater. The movie posters change every time to give us references to the minisodes or the plot. There's also the title of the episodes. Then we see the side cut of the theater. There's a room where the popcorn is being made. Some of the popcorn is actually communion wafers. But more importantly, in the same room where the popcorn machine is, it says the Perugia on the wall. Perugia is a Greek word and means a coming or a present and usually is used as referring to the coming of Christ. In the booths of the theatre are specific characters from season one. I did not manage to make out a single one of them because pixels. Then there apparently is an accordion playing duck that I only caught because it was pointed out to me. And that accordion playing duck is taken from a newspaper headline within the show. As we already mentioned, every episode has a different movie in quotation marks on screen. So it always refers to the respective episode. We go through the screen, start going up the hill, and then there's a season one phone box that tumbles down there. I only make out the movement, not the phone box itself. And then it all finishes up on the top of the hill, which happens to be the shape of a triangle. And a triangle is very important within Christianity because, you know, Holy Trinity. And there is an elevator that is going to lead us up to heaven because second coming. Ta-da! Incredible. Did you have anything that I missed? I just happened to notice that there is Crowley in an elevator up when we when Ooh, you mentioned I missed that, that uh, Gabriel is going down. I'm pretty sure there was a moment where Crowley is going up. Mm. And I believe that there are like a movie posters behind the saying of the name of the episode that also slightly changes for each 
episode. Yes. But I'm pretty sure you otherwise covered literally every single little detail in the opening. So I missed well the Crowley one. I put it in done. my notes so that the notes are full. And I will go back and rewatch the opening for the 76th time. <sighs> no, you need to watch it at least 69 times because otherwise it doesn't. No, I'm already at 70, work. honey. I'm already over 69. Oh, wait, 70, 76. Yeah, I'm already over 69. As if I would finish Rude. before 69. <laughs> yeah, I did that. Sorry. It's wow. been a while. With all of this load of information on top of us, we get to talk about the outros because this is something that I don't understand how, but Lena has not noticed while you are watching the episodes. And... To me, it's completely inconceivable. I went back and listened to it and I was like, okay, yeah, I can tell if it's different music, but that's all I can say. <sighs> there is uh, two versions that I kind of struggle with because reasons, but I'll get to that. So each episode has an outro that is the opening song or the theme song of Good Omens, but in a different version. I have not been able to find the different versions myself, unfortunately. <laughs> I really hope that they are going to be released or that they have been released and I just didn't look properly or they're only on Spotify, whatever. So uh, hopefully we'll get them. But each of those versions are adequate to what the episode was about. So in episode one, we end with a complete a cappella choir version of the theme song. I would... Wow. Okay say that this is because this is the arrival and there is a lot of quite a lot of heaven things. He heavenly choir, right? So it feels like a heavenly choir kind of a situation. So that would be connected to that. I'm telling you, I did not look it up. I don't have any confirmation. So I am only basing this on my personal knowledge. So if you do have anything to add, listeners, please. Send us an essay. Write me an essay. Our expectations now, are high. They truly Thanks, are. Amy. Episode two, we get the whole BC times we get Job and we get Middle East and then the outro is like a Middle Eastern uh, instruments you can uh, hear uh, the harmonies being slightly different and being more aimed towards that type of music I am not an expert on that type of music so uh, I uh, don't know if there is a name for that specific type of music but it definitely brings a lot of kind of type of music that you hear when you're watching movies about Egypt or Middle East or mm, um, yeah. that kind of a thing. And then obviously the connection is right there. And even though we didn't actually have real scenery in the background, we might be mentioning that in the bonus, yes, we would have seen... CGI. We would have seen how uh, the backgrounds were created. And they were sort of based on the area, but they are not a specific area, which I think is a very similar with the theme of the music. Now, in episode three, we go to Scotland. <laughs> we have Tartan. We have... Edinburgh. Myriad of Scottish accents coming from David Tennant. Yeah. We have Edinburgh. We have the castle. All of these fun things. And therefore, the only obvious choice for the outro must have been bagpipes. And this, I believe, that was the time that I actually full-on clocked it. And 
brought it up in the episode and that's where I realized that I need to pay more attention because I don't pay enough attention. I always stop it right away because no, the next episode might start and you go like, there's like the Amazon logo opening, like you, you have enough time. Like, no, I don't. Absolutely not. Also, I, I realized that my Amazon like basically instantly skips over to the next episode. Like I hear like a bit of the music, but then it goes like, ah! episode so i don't have this attention span quality so i like music next so yeah this is probably why it took me until episode three to actually clock the music because obviously you can hear a couple of seconds before amazon brings Mm -hmm. you to the next episode this is my self-excuse anyway (laughs) (laughs) i mean come on we miss so many things because apparently even furfur is a repeat actor he is. Yeah. I I found out found that out and I, it blew my mind. In our defense, <laughs> that role was very, very small. I don't care. We missed so much. We are bad podcasters. I mean, we're amazing because we're take, entertaining. Take it back. But. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> okay. Now, sorry. Next. This is where it gets a little hairy. <laughs> because <Bloody>. in, <laughs> sorry. in episode four, we end with a George Gershwin-like version of... What? The intro. George Gershwin. What? What? One of the one of the swing gods. Ah, um, when we okay. had the yes, 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 Benny Goodman. We, w- let's go with Benny Goodman. Yes, yes, but now I remember when you were like, oh yeah, yeah of course I know. And I was like, yeah, I'm a ben- Benny Goodman, and then you were like, no, 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 I was like, no, 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 no. Okay, thank you. Yes. Okay, so this is a type of swingy big band kind of a situation, which is very obviously taken from what Zraphel is listening to in the car when he is driving and ah. picking up shucks as the hitchhiker. It's a very similar style. I named it swing in my notes because that's what swing is to me. Mm. And But the truth is that I am not uh, the best in uh, naming these styles <laughs> of, of music. When it, I know them, but I can't necessarily name them. So let's go with Swing. And this is clearly inspired by what Zerfel is listening in the car. So this is where that comes from. And obviously it would probably be the same era as our Nazi zombie thingies that is the Megazord Second in that World episode. War? Exactly. Blitz? The <laughs> 40s. Good times. For nobody. And now that brings us to episode five. And this is, again, a little difficult for me. Because here, and this is something that I cannot say with absolute certainty, because uh, we had this conversation going through season one. I don't 100% know what Bebop is, (laughs) but I am pretty sure that the style that we get at the end of this episode is Bebop. I named it jazz, but it is... I don't know if it's Bebop, actually. It might not be. I don't know if you've ever played Mafia, the the, the game, but that would be based in about the 20s. Uh, So uh, during like the Prohibition era. That is the vibe that I'm getting from this version. Call it jazz because Bebop is like a subcategory of jazz. Yeah. This is is why I'm calling it... Not all jazz is Bebop. This is why I call it jazz in my notes but I think it would be extremely funny if they actually went with Bebop. And I cannot tell that it's not. <laughs> so here we are. And obviously, this is a more trickier to place of 
uh, the, the reasoning behind this choice because we do have the ball, but the ball is more aimed towards a little bit of an older period of time. This is why I'm leaning towards it's actually Bebop. You might want to listen to it and, and tell me because you seem to have a better acknowledgement of what Bebop is. But if you can name the specific genre of jazz, please message me because I would like to name it. But as I said, I'm shit at this. I can give I'm you the official definition of Bebop from Wikipedia if that helps you. I mean, you can try. Let's see. Bebop is a style of jazz developed in the early to mid-1940s in the United States. The style features compositions characterized by a fast tempo, usually exceeding 200 beats per minute, complex chord progressions with rapid chord changes and numerous changes of key, instrumental virtuosity, and improvisation based on a combination of harmonic structure, the use of scales, and occasional reference to the melody. I think it could be very easily Bebop, and I would find that very hilarious. Good! So we're on episode 5, right? And then episode 6 happens. And I've listened to the last song of episode 6, and I don't believe it is actually the theme song. I think it's just a very sad classical music. It could be a weird version of the of the theme song that I could not pick up the melody in. The notes, like the transcript yeah. says, melancholy music playing. I call it classical sad music. Fuck off. I know better. But that is what the transcript says. Yeah. So I don't think that this is actually a variation of the theme song, which sets it apart. It sets the ending apart yeah. and for good reason, because this is the time that where we end on a very different note. And this <laughs> is the final countdown. It's the final countdown. <laughs> Mood break. Uh, sorry. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Wow, that Whew. was a lot. I love the excursion about Bebop. Let's see how much manages to stay in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. uh, I would now delve into the copious amounts. Oh, my soft booth is so soft. The copious amounts of bonus material that is on Amazon. And not gonna lie, had I realized how much there is, I probably would have talked us into doing bonus episodes while we were covering the show. Because it would have been like an extra 10 minutes for every episode. But going through all of it at once was a lot. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I also have to say, I don't really have any comments on the VFX breakdowns. Because most of that was interesting information, but not really something that I needed to comment on. So while I did watch all of that, I don't really have much to say on the various VFX breakdowns. I mean, they are very self-explanatory when you actually start watching them yourself. Yeah. The one thing I can tell you about the VFX breakdown is that I have just met up with a friend of mine and she works in the studio or she worked in the studio when they were working on Good Omens. The studio is based here in Dublin called Milk Productions, I believe. Unfortunately, she has not watched the show nor she has need to watch the show so she said I just got images and no sound and just did my job did what I was told so there wasn't really much else to tell but that is sad she has actually worked on two specific scenes one is in uh, episode one and it is the opening scene with the uh, universe creation no she didn't 
actually create the images, but what she did was create markers for the person then to take those markers and make them into the galaxies and and the blitz and and the comets coming in as, as a level and stuff. So um, it was more of a kind of a prep work for that. And then the one scene that she had, she was in charge of is the scene where Shax is in disguise as a young woman mm-hmm. in episode four and she is entering the car. So my friend was the one who was adding the smoke and, and the background behind the windows of the car because obviously that was filmed in front of a blue screen. That is cool. That is really, really cool. Nice. It is very cool. We watched those two scenes together Aww. and I have thanked her profusely for her contribution to one of my favorite shows. So the general bonus content, I separated it into the two things that were like available before you click on any of the episodes. And then I kept everything else in the relating episode when it was made available once you click on the episode and on bonus. Aside from the VFX, we have creating a title sequence and Good Omens is back as general bonus. And for creating a title sequence, it was very interesting. I feel like we already covered most of it when we talk about the opening. The only thing I want to point out is they say, we're obsessing over every part of the storytelling. And I was like, so are we. Oh, interesting. I wonder how that feels. So yeah, that was like, I felt like they are kindred spirits, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Also, I love that uh, the background was talked by, uh, what's his first name? I don't remember. Uh, For, by uh, the owner of the music studio and of the studio and the uh, uh, composer for the show, uh, someone Arnold. David? Daniel? David Arnold. I think so. Sure. So Go double check. Yes, David Arnold. See, I knew. David or Daniel. Well done. D. Arnold. Yes. But most importantly, the good omens is back. And watching this after having finished the season? Wow. Neil Gaiman talking about the truly joyful ways? <laughs> All I have to say is lies. I think that we all find joy in different things. and uh, Yes, clearly, I'm a masochist, but not like this. Clearly, Neil finds joys in making other people suffer. And then I think one of the female actors called it a bromance between Aziraphale and Crowley. And I was like, yo, that what? she did. Neil keeps fucking with me because he said that he was working so hard to tell him absolutely nothing. Which I was like, Neil, <laughs> screw you. Mm-hmm. And I forgot who said it, but they were talking about Neil writing and that he has a gift to make clear the absurdity of being human. I'm pretty sure that was Maggie. And I just, I feel this so much because I've read a lot of Neil Gaiman and mm-hmm. the absurdity of being human is definitely something that keeps coming up. And while I was watching this, I was like, we should have watched this before starting because it would have told us so many things that we didn't realize, like Maggie being Maggie and Nina being Nina and Furfur being Shakespeare in season one. Mm-hmm. Also, we get a timeline info here that season two is three to four years after season one. And that makes it so much worse. Basically, two most important informations that I have gathered from this video was Furfur is Shakespeare. Frofro is Shakespeare. Frofro. And we, <laughs> we get 
uh, timeline. Yeah. So this is something that we've managed to kind of glance over in episode one or two, I think, when uh, we were wondering how long it actually has been. And I mean, we even have in the, the finale apocalypse. when Crowley says, like, um, when he talks about we're a group, a team, a group of two, when he literally is incapable of saying the word couple, pain, pain. Mm-hmm. But he also says like, uh, and we're like pretending that we're not, well, not so much the last few years. And obviously these three to four years is what he's referencing here. So. <laughs> True that. And then, of course, I still get to my amusement moment because Michael Sheen talking about fan art and fan fiction gave me joy. Well, both him and David. Yeah, but Michael Sheen is the one who starts and I'm like, <laughs> so, yeah, I am here for that. I'm very much here for that. I also loved slash hated the fact that David talks about being at a Comic-Con and everybody being dressed up as Crowley and Azrafel and being there as a couple, as two people together. Because in his mind, they do not exist without each other. I mean, and I don't know in which one it is, but in one of the bonus materials, they talk about that the that there is no Aziraphale theme and Crowley theme. There's only their theme. Mm. So they only exist as a couple, even if we are now at the place that we are. And I think it is David who calls Crowley and Aziraphale, or is it Michael, the yin and yang? I'm pretty sure that's, uh, that's David. And that just... I think it's one of the last lines in this bonus and it made me very sad. Yeah. Because they, they are. are. <laughs> but also <Yeah>. no. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but that is laugh. all I have for the basic bonus material. Anything else I missed? No, not as far as I know. As I said, I only had a very few important bits in there and we have managed to mention both of them. And I am really glad that this is it then. We now have named all the people that have been in both seasons as different characters. Finally! Thank you very much. (laughs) Also, I loved that Maggie was talking about the different experience of being a group of nuns in season one and not actually getting to meet Crowley and Azraphel. I think that she walks past Crowley at some point or something, but No, I don't think I don't think even that. I think that they are adjacently in the uh, the same building. Yeah, they are in the same building. For a very short period of time and that's about it. Yeah, he delivers the baby and he leaves. And she is in the building. How different that experience is with actually interacting with the two of them and obviously then people talking about the two of them uh, being the two of uh, them Michael yeah like Michael and David disappearing and only Crowley and Israfel exists when the camera points in their direction excellent excellent Neil also said that when he sees Michael and David interacting that's where his Crowley and Israfel are it's like meeting an old friend I'm pretty sure he has said because the man has a way with words I don't know if you've noticed I love the fact like Neil does quite a few of his own audiobooks like he reads them himself I can listen to the man talk forever Mm. he's a very peculiar voice that really works for me Mm. so yeah I love his accent and his voice I can provide you with audiobooks if you want (sighs) I will forever cherish the time he spoke life in front of me fuck you (laughs) I knew this was coming (laughs) 
All right. Bonus content episode one. So we get a blooper and an extended scene. For the right. blooper, all I have to say is, wow, really? Is that the seventh thing? Yes. I don't think I got that properly. Is that that? Yeah, that when you is... rate like mm. dancing competitions, yeah. you hold up yeah. the numbers. Madut, that was at least an eight, maybe 8.2. Also, who gave him that sign? Did Michael bring the sign? Yes, I am 100% <laughs> sure that Michael has made that sign by hand on his own. Also, how big do you think the apology dance is going to be that Aziraphale is doing in season three? Ooh, that is a good question. Do you want me it's to shelve it to for be... season three? Do you know, wait, hold on, hold on. I can write it down so you can think about it for for. I know exactly what's going to happen. Okay. Do you know how when a Christian or I don't know who else, when you go to the priest and you tell them Confession. you have sinned? Confession, thank you. My brain is melting. <laughs> So there much is for being no sober. air in this. <laughs> I never said I was sober. I said I I was. I'm not forgetting my own name yet. That is not sober. Oh, I mean, um, you forget you forget everything when you're sober in English ever either way. True. I just Especially lose my podcast. capability to talk. Yeah. So basically, you know how when Christians go to confession and they are told, "Oh, fifteen Bloody Marys and and twelve, uh, <laughs> hail you know, Eva Marias, same thing." And so, so this is how it's going to work. He's going to have to do a certain pennant. So he's going to have to do a confession to Crowley. And then Crowley is going to be like, okay, I will forgive you. If. But only if you do uh, 15 apologies and 127 uh, run around in circles and fly above the building and get me 50,000 Bentleys or something like that. But there's going to be multiple apologies. He's going to do all in a row. I was wrong. I was wrong. You were right. You were right. And we're going to get to enjoy at least some of it. You think so? This is now my prediction and you can move it into predictions or leave it here. Do you really think so or are you being funny? Yes. Um, <laughs> the extended scene, it's, I think it's just a longer walk up there. And I think the garden hose in the handbag was also not in the final scene, right? Don't think so. Yeah, that would be it. And then I think that there's a couple more like cut throughs. Yeah, but like the apples are in there and they make it into the final cut. Like most of it um, is there. It's just shorter. It's actually tomatoes, but okay. Oh my god, who cares? It's round red objects. Let it be apples. We are the apple of truth, okay? <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. <laughs> but enough of apples or tomatoes or oranges. We go into the bonus content for Tomatoes, apple potatoes. P tomatoes or potatoes. Yes, exactly. Tomato, tomato, potato, potato. We go into the bonus content for episode two. And we have the, they call it bloopers for the drinks, but it's just like alternative orders. And obviously all the bonus material does not have subtitles. So I tried my very best to write it out. I only wrote down my favorite ones. Okay. Give me your favorite. Well, my second most favorite is for the old lady. Yes. And my most most favorite is for Miss Marple. So those are the last two ones. Before we go there, we have Angela Lansbury, which who is, if I'm not mistaken, the actress who plays Murder She Wrote main character, right? Um, yeah, that sounds correct. And isn't Miss Marple the yes. person in Murder She Wrote? No. No, 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 no. No, no. Miss Marple is played by it. Two very distinctive women and non uh they're no, both Angela Lansbury played Miss Marple. I am right. In a movie. What kind of movie? 1980. Is that it's an, an Agatha, American movie? It's an Agatha Christie movie and Angela Lansbury 
played the main. There is an American movie that is un- uh, that is Miss Marple. Yeah, that is rude and wrong. Somebody tell and me. And Murder She Wrote is based on Miss Marple stories. Yes, yes, it is based on Miss Marple stories, but it's I did I it's had still no all idea. Connected. I had no idea that she actually played yeah, in, in the actual Miss Marple movie. Yes. Which is wrong. I wonder what kind of accent she used. Now I kind of want to watch it. <laughs> No, but my Miss Marple is one of my favorite fucking detectives. So yeah, we, we talked about this. This is mind blowing to me. There's very little information. So because I thought that all of this was connected, mm-hmm. because I'm pretty sure that everything relates somehow to each other. Because the old lady, obviously, and Miss Marple, and now as I've proven to you, Angela Lansbury, it all connects. Right? Yes, so far so good. So if I'm not mistaken, Angela Lansbury also does the voice for the Dowager, or however you pronounce it, in Anastasia. And one of the things Crowley says is the Dowager Duchess. Mm-hmm. So this is again, it again tracks. And one of the things is my elderly friend. And I mean, come on, old lady, elderly friend, so it's all the same. Good. And the only thing I could not make out was the second one, my mate something. Mm. And I feel like all of these are, like everything is somehow relating. And it is deliberate by David Tennant that they all somehow connect. Yes, there is almost definitely deliberate by David Tennant that they are connected. I feel like all of this plays together and I thought it was fucking hilarious. Yes. Sorry. I'm going to, I'm going to, re- you said you couldn't make the out second the second one. one, right? First is Angela Lansbury and third is Dow- Dowager Dust Duchess. Can't pronounce that shit. The one in between. Go on, go on. <laughs> Yes, and this is also connected because he says, uh, large telescope, please, and a sherry for my maiden aunt. Maiden aunt. Oh, my God. Okay, Which yes. is basically a description of Miss Marple. Yes. Okay, but that means it definitely is deliberate. It is all connected. I fucking love this. So Aziraphale is Miss Marple. Yes. I mean, it makes sense because he is playing detective. God, I love it. Fucking hell. Yes. Okay, this is amazing. I love this. This makes me very happy. Okay, this is obviously all I have for the many Sherry orders. We go into the next bonus content for episode two that is called Biblically Good. I love that one. So cute. I didn't care much about the family stuff because we already talked about all of this. What I found really interesting was the jumping into frame technique that they used for Mm -hmm. the falling through the floor because the technique is surprisingly simple, but it looks amazing on screen. So whenever Mm -hmm. tiny tidbits like that get explained, I'm like, ah, this is so cool. So yeah. And also, remember how much I disliked Aziraphil eating? Mm-hmm. I was happy to see that at least they had a lot of fun filming it. <laughs> yeah. So that made it a bit better for me. Yeah, I suppose. I also love that David calls it a beef rib, but it's basically the entire oxen. <laughs> I also love it that when David Tennant talks about playing Crowley or the way Crowley is, he calls it a little bit rock and roll. Oh, yeah, because it kind of is. It really is. 
So, yeah, I am here for it. As I said, nothing for the VFX for chapter two. So unless you have something. Not really, no. So then we shall move on to episode three, where we only have one bonus segment. That is grave danger. And I have a question. What is so bad about driving the Bentley? Because they are like really complaining about it. I would assume it's it's just... Is it because, because the, it's an old car? The wheel doesn't have like the... I don't know car terms, but like the wheel doesn't have a support, so it turns easier? Not easier. More difficult, I'd say. No, no, like old cars, you have to like... You have to do the work and new cars you, have you like have the to, easy yeah. vroom, vroom, vroom. And yeah. is that what they are complaining about? I couldn't tell you. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I assume that it's like... Because they were like, oh, it's so uh, because, hard to do this and this. It's like, really? Like, isn't that like, aren't you old enough to be used to driving those cars? Um, <laughs> wait, wait, uh, driving a car like that, though. No, like, um, I don't know the word for it. No, because you have a, I know, I know the word in Czech. It's like a strengthenator, basically. It's like something that helps you turn the wheel so you don't actually have to do the work of turning the wheel. Servolenkung is the German word. Which, like, in older cars, it does not exist. So you are actually Power physically, steering or yeah. assisted steering. Yeah, you have to actually physically physically turn the wheel in yeah, all the like, cars. The first two so cars really that I heavy. remember from like family vacations didn't have assisted steering. Yes. And <laughs> yeah, but those two are old enough to be my parents, right? How old yes. are they? Uh I think David is 51. Okay, no. 52? Okay, no, he's much younger than my parents. Okay, good. Oh, good. But Sorry. regardless, like it's uh, older the car, more difficult the sets. Uh, it's just because the system was very straightforward back then, and it was yeah, just I know, I know, a pole connected to a pole. The H is the answer. I made them, and I made them a lot older in my brain. So no. They yeah. would not have been driving around in cars. All is well. I'm just old. <laughs> You're not. Not in my head. Don't shatter my expectations. I'm sorry, but yeah, no. If David Tennant is 50-something and I'm 40, he's 15 years plus minus older than me. And then he was not driving around when I was a wee child in the backseat of the car and our car didn't have power steering. They didn't start having power steering until like relatively recently is the thing. I don't know. I could not tell you. He's 52, by the way. So he is 13 years older than me. Okay. Chrysler was the first one to roll it out in 1951. Yeah. Yeah. So... But that was like... It it took a while for like the older cars to have it. Well, I don't know. Okay. I don't understand the complaining about the heavy wheel because... Yeah. Seemed normal to me. Um, (laughs) I thought it was adorable that we get an actual tiny set for Huge Crowny. I thought all of it was CGI. So cute. No, isn't it the most beautiful thing? Yes, I thought it was absolutely adorable, but I honestly thought it was all CGI. Mm. Well, the more you learn. Yeah. Also, we see short moments of concept art. And yes. the concept art is beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. And I'm really excited because we have a book here that has a lot of details of behind the scenes on season one. And I can't wait for the second season to be... To give, give us another book. Yeah. 
Yeah, do you have another book? Because it has a lot of uh, the concept art and uh, costume designs and stuff like that in that. So hopefully we're going to be able to get something like that for uh, season two as well. Then we get some reference to the reason for the top hats. We have someone say biggly badly, which I found hilarious. But... Most importantly, they keep calling Aziraphale a blonde. Yeah. He has white hair. That's not blonde. No, no, no. In another bonus, they call it white. So it's white. I missed that. So why do people keep referring to him as a blonde? Listen, I have learned to not doubt the uh, concept of blonde of people in this country or uh, So white hair is just also blonde. Listen, I have heard people calling me blonde. What? Yeah, well, once or twice. So lastly, the way John Hamm talks about his statue actually led me to believe that he was kind of uncomfortable with that. Is he? Yeah, like that that's how I understood it. Like, I don't know. I, it felt more like, I don't know how to describe it. It felt more like he um, was kind of uneased by it, but then he was just like, eh fine okay it was weird at the beginning but then i kind of got used to it yeah i didn't get that i got used to it i only got the it was weird part (laughs) all right that's all i have for this one we go into bonus content episode four and the zombie extended and the magic trick extended scene i didn't care because it was just like it was the same scene just uh, the camera kept a different focus on someone yes that was it right okay Good. Mm-hmm. Once again, for the VFX, I don't have anything relevant to say except that Muriel's Crowley impression was adorable. <laughs> right? Yeah, well. Then, of course, we have the Mrs. Henderson blooper, which was cute with the I'm fucked. And the face. Yeah. Yeah, when she got, oh, it's so cute. That was uh. adorable. And then, of course, we have the devil is in the details. I'm like, copyright! Uh, because, like, uh... <laughs> because nobody has ever used that. Exactly. Like, uh, dear listeners, this is what we call our bonus segments. We have a Devils in the Details and a Devils in the Music, or we used to have for Lucifer, where we, for every single episode, would focus on one of the songs and one random topic that I decided was interesting because Vero does the music and I do the random tangents. So I was like, this is mine. But we do get some interesting bits. We learned that there was 80 fucking extras that hell was freezing, that Neil wrote all the posters, which makes them even better. Also, this is the moment I want to shout out the lovely, lovely person who sent us a message that maybe we might get some poster designs. So we shall see what comes of that. But most importantly, Neil is quoted as saying, heaven is the best real estate in the universe and hell is the worst real estate. And as some Someone yep. who just moved into a new place. Damn. <laughs> Is your place the best real estate or the worst real estate? Honestly, I think it's the best, but it was occupied by someone who tried to make it the worst. Or as my carpenter put it, oh, this hmm. is so much nicer than the last time I was here. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. No, it's shaping up. It's really shaping up. So It's yay. good. But yay. that is all I have for episode four. Yeah, no, it was very straightforward and kind of like 
unexpected. I feel like there was a lot of details that we have talked about already that you've mentioned. Even I'm pretty sure, didn't you mention that Neil was the one writing the posters already in the episode? Or is it just me gaslighting myself into I don't you? think I said that Neil wrote the posters. I just said that there are so many posters and I tried to quote them all and then Amazon gaslit me because it was unnecessary that I did the freeze framing. Ah, because rude. like when I started doing it, they didn't have any information about the posters and then the next episode they had all the information about the posters. I was like, fuck you. <laughs> Which is t- t- like a little rude. Yeah, very. Good. Let's move <laughs> into the penultimate episode bonus content for episode five, which has several deleted scenes, which I didn't like a single one of them. They were all completely it, it, useless. There is a reason there are deleted. Yeah, but remember when we did Lucifer, where we would watch the deleted scenes and sometimes actually have an issue why a scene was deleted or where we actually had put it on a question list. And then when we got the chance to talk to um, the showrunners, like taking this scene out actually affected the way the episode or the scene was understood as a viewer who didn't have the context. These deleted scenes are all maximum irrelevant. Yeah. The thing is, though, there is a difference because the deleted scenes from Lucifer were mainly... Well, they were all from uh, when they were on uh, a network. Mm. So they were restricted by time. While here, they are not restricted by time. It doesn't really matter if the episode is going to be extra two minutes or less. Because if you look at the range of the length of the episodes that are... I have never paid attention to that. Not just Good Omens, but like streaming service originals tend to have much more uh, wiggle room when it comes to episode lengths. That's a really interesting point. I have never thought about so they have no need to trim things that would be relevant to the episode i would say especially based on what we're seeing here they trimmed what didn't work in the episode that is a really good point and now i'm super fucking curious about that because i have never paid attention to like the episode length which is funny because i write down the end time for every scene but i never write down the end time of the final scene because Mm -hmm. in my brain every episode has the same length Mm -hmm. but apparently no so that is a really interesting point and I have to start paying attention to that especially when I watch shows that used to be on television and now I watch it on streaming and then compare it to when watching shows that were made for streaming Good, that explains it then, but it doesn't change the fact that all of those deleted scenes were completely irrelevant to me. So, yeah. Yep. Like, absolutely. Yay. But apparently, like, Robert Wilkins <laughs> has a scene, but I thought Robert Wilkins is a producer, so why does he even have a scene? D- right? Okay, like, I. Good. Yeah, confusion. No comment on the VFX breakdown, obviously. But we have the Strictly Come Demons and I found it a bit funny that even behind the scenes there are Doctor Who references. Has to be done! Because calling the bookshop a TARDIS with fitting all the cast in there was a bit cute. What do you mean a bit? For you it's very cute. For me it made one side of my mouth curl up. The last bonus bit for episode 5 is the costumes of season 2 and I know that I referenced the costume designer but of course now I can't remember her name but she is being described as incredibly Scottish which I found hilarious and most importantly David Tennant is calling Crowley delicious 
in this bonus. If you can see my face now, frantically kind of looking around, is that... Bonus content episode five, the costumes of season two. I think I may have like lost something. over that? I did not watch it. Well then, please do take the 30 seconds or however long this bonus is and watch the costumes of season two. Okay, um, I have to say I, I love Miranda. The stork? Yes, and the way she talks about the breastplate and keeping her coffee in there. Everything. Yeah, are you done? <laughs> yes. Good. So, obviously, delicious. Can you please now have the appropriate reaction to David calling Crowley delicious? <sighs> it's like, absolutely, honestly. The way these two understand and are the characters is... Right? Oh, my God. So, like, that I was the it. one absolutely amazing thing but the other thing I want to talk about in this bonus and I'm actually quite happy that you just like rewatched it now or watched it why a stork so we know Crowley has the snake as his animal right mm-hmm. and we know that uh, Haster right had the, the frog yes why a stork for shacks like what is the logic behind the animals that are associated with the demons well I don't know what the logic is but when I google shacks stork I get a multitude of links, including demonology fandom that uh, says Shucks, also spelled different ways, is a great marquis of Yinnenstan. Oh, Shucks is an actual over, demon! Yeah, over 30 legions of demons on evil horses. He takes away the sight, hearing, and understanding of any person under the conjurer's request and steals money out of king's houses. Carrying it back to the people, which is interesting. So Shax has the stork because Shax is actually taken from another mythology. Mm-hmm. <gasps> he is depicted Shax as a stork can that also speaks... discover hidden things. Ooh. He is depicted as a stork that speaks with a hoarse but subtle voice. His voice changes into a beautiful one once he's entered the magic triangle. I don't know what kind of magic triangle dude, we're dude, talking dude, about. No, you, you need to I you need am... to skip lower because. Shax is thought to be faithful and obedient, but is a great liar. Ah! Okay, I had not realized that Shax was an actual demon. Oh my god. <sighs> Look at this. The things we learn while drinking and recording. And after four hours of this shit, we're still here. This is so cool. Oh my god. Okay, yeah, we definitely need to do like a rewatch and shit. <laughs> that is the answer to my question. Why are Stork for Shax? Because Shax and the Stork are linked. And this is amazing. Oh my god. Okay, fucking love that. Good. That is all I have for episode five. Anything that you want to add? Nope. She shakes her head. I can't hear that. She Neither can shakes you. her head <laughs> as uh, she uh, says... No! Good. And is kind of hoping that there is no forgotten videos in episode 6. No, I don't think so. Because we go into the bonus content for episode 6. We have, of course, the VFX breakdown. As usual, I don't have much. But there apparently is a random Hitchhiker's Guide reference in there that is being mentioned with the green thumb. Which, of course, is hilarious because Terry Pratchett wrote the guide to the Hitchhiker's Guide. If you want to know more about that, you need to be a believer or higher on our Patreon because we have 
hours upon bonus content and in one of those hours or one and a half we actually talk about that but there are the disasters of unimaginable scales as a bonus and so we get a bit more information how the attack worked and the stone throw with the special glass and usually I would have been like yeah whatever who cares but I <laughs> met an actor at a convention and she actually has like a really deep long scar from a stunt gone wrong where the studio skimmed on exactly what is being described in this scene and so it wasn't safety glass that was used oh and I remember you were telling me about this into actually. her face and like this could have gone so much worse but it's already really bad and mm-hmm. so because she talked very openly about that experience and like how it happened and what it entailed and everything ever since then I have found a new appreciation for these details because yeah nobody cares about this as long as everything goes right but the second mm-hmm. it goes wrong this becomes like literally the most important thing on set so I really appreciate that they are taking this amount of care and focus to make sure nothing happens because this yes. can fuck up lives like this can destroy lives so I was very very appreciative of that and also I found it was really cool that they were rising up the demons on a platform <gasps> I knew Because, like, they explain why, and I really have to agree, it gives you a more organic feel on how they are being pulled up. Because they are not being pulled, they are being raised. And it feels so much better than on strings or ropes or whatever. So, that was really cool. Like, this is one of my favorite technical bonuses, because (laughs) it's so cool. Yeah, it's always so good to get a little bit of behind the scenes, because there is just so much work yes and so much attention to detail and especially with a show like this we go into the last bonus content and that is the easter eggs and here i was very naive because i was like oh that seems very short to cover all the easter eggs they don't they give us some easter eggs Mm -hmm. but basically what they do is they tell us there is a lot of them have fun finding them which okay i get (laughs) but still i was like and then it took me a moment so I wrote them all down let's see if I forgot any the pup the dirty donkey is the same pup from season one so it should have been recollection remembrance whatever mm-hmm. Rob Wilkins wants a good omens exhibition with all the items and everything he says there so we need to keep an eye out if that ever happens especially after season three because that's definitely happening there is the portrait that i talked about in the episode of terry we see that one but there is also a portrait of agnes nutter in the dirty donkey then in every scene we are in the record shop something changes there's a different poster there's something changed in the background la 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 mostly it's Powell and Pressburger stuff so it was actually really good that I started obsessing about the Powell and Pressburger (laughs) stuff which I didn't know when I started doing it there are the magazines with all the wild theories that Adam reads in season one spread out in the coffee shop so that is really cute I didn't spot a single one in the show we get a mention of the table tennis playing nuns which made me very happy because I spotted them so I feel validated apparently Gabriel's sweater has Gabriel flowers which is a thing I didn't know that and halos on it like as the pictures and basically they tell us to go through the show frame by frame and find all the easter eggs so I call upon you fandom find them all (laughs) so I can find you and then I can collect them all 
And that's all I yeah, have. Yeah, gotta catch them all. Exactly. It's worse than Pokemon because you can't even fight with it or something. Yeah. No, that makes no sense. That was everything I have for bonus. Did I miss anything? Not to my knowledge. You are very thorough when it comes to this shit. I know, kind of <laughs> like it. It's actually scary. So this concludes the bonus material on Amazon, but it does not, by any means, conclude this episode. And yes, we are over four hours into this recording. The episode is not going to be four hours at this point because there's a lot of quietness. Because, well, there are pee breaks. Vero missed some bits that she needed to watch while I just waited. There's a lot of blowing your noses and everything in the beginning of the episode. So, ah, it's probably just three hours at this point. <laughs> just three hours. But, oh, Vero, God. please yes. do take us into the next segment because this is yours. Uh, thank you. Thank you for this. So, we are here today to admit <laughs> that our British English is not the best. And we <laughs> learn constantly when it comes to new things and we learn to accept them and deep dive into them and sometimes <laughs> amuse each other and murder you. in learning in learning not yearning yes learning and yearning yes learning and yearning learning and yearning so in this segment we will learn what was our favorite British word of the episode and I will start with mine. Can you walk me through your six words? Or did you not write oh, them down? I did not write them okay. all down. Oh. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> wow. I can tell you that out of my six words, not all of them were British. True. So Same. Um, one of them was American, I believe. Yeah. Was it only one? One of mine was Scottish. Uh, yes. Yes, it was. And if you give me five more seconds, I Never. will tell you more about that. And so basically, I've had based on upon the episode number, when episode one, I have started with oodles. Yes, which, oodles. That was oodles is, of fun. It was oodles of fun. It was very fun word to say. It is a word that has been repeated to me in a real life, which was kind of <laughs> nice new experience to me but it was fun uh, but this what it this what's not it this was, this was not your choice it wasn't my choice oh god it wasn't in the second episode i have talked about the word pash which yes is a short of passion made it on my short list because it was a short for passion oh <laughs> my god um, but as in the end it didn't even matter it was not my final choice in episode three i have talked about incredible word it was the word toast that <laughs> came back to me a little bit later and T i slightly oh. regretted not doing it all over again <laughs> t-o-s-t-e Toast. And as fun as this word was, it was not my choice. Episode four. Let me guess. Episode I... six was your choice? Yeah, shut up. Uh, episode four <laughs> was the word bemused, which was entertaining because it actually, for once, 
I didn't realize what it meant, but it was good. It was not my choice. In episode five, I've talked about the word paltry, which I completely misunderstood and uh, thought it went pantry. So... <laughs> Also a learning experience. And that brings me to the last word that I, again, did not understand, even from a context, what it meant. And it was actually my favorite episode of the season. Was that chinwag? And that was the word chinwag. Oh God. Because I learned so much. I did not see that coming. I actually thought you were going to go with oodles. Oodles was great, but chinwag. Yeah, I thought you were going to go with oodles because it was so fun. Yeah, I think that it's just because Chinwag was the biggest surprise to me and <laughs> just the fact that I have come across variations of this word in my life and not being able to recognize it without the context. It it was the most mind-blowing this season to me, I think. Makes perfect sense, but also it was like you starting with the words. I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's going to be the last one. What was the last one? I don't remember. <laughs> and then you start talking about the lead. I was like, oh, of course it was Chinwag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we literally recorded this episode last week, so I should remember Chinwag. it. My words were illimitable, scarred, resurrectionists, conjurer, to carp and jigger. Do you want to take a guess which my winner is? To carp. Close. Because you use it in the concept. Uh, you use it in the sentence. Close. So I couldn't make up my mind if to carp or conjurer was going to be the winner. And to carp actually came up in a conversation. I didn't say it. Someone made a joke. And the punchline was he didn't want to be carping on about it. And I was like, actually, uh, no. And I stopped myself from not <laughs> going on to an actually did you know tangent. But someone told me who listened to the episode that they enjoyed my joy when talking about the word conjurer. And I feel like when people enjoy my joy, that is the most joyful thing that can be. Joy, joy. Exactly. Joy, joy, joy. joy, joy. And this is why I went with the conjurer. Haha. <laughs> no, but conjurer. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> who saw that one coming? Please keep it in the episode. Thank you very much. Goodbye. And with that, we say thank you. No, we don't. Not even close. I know. It's nearly 11 p.m. for me, but we need to get this finished. Do we? Yes. Stop complaining. Next up is all me talking. So, lean back and enjoy. Because every time we watch something, we have a question and then we write it every down. Day. And sometimes we have a chance to actually ask people who are in a position to answer these questions. So when we covered six seasons of Lucifer, we collected, I think, around 110 questions in total. Yeah? No? Yes. Good. That sounds about right. And we went to a convention and we actually got to ask quite a few of those. So that was pretty amazing. And so because we are fucking optimists, we started watching Good Omens and we also started collecting questions that most likely only David Tennant, Michael Sheen or Neil Gaiman can answer. But ah, who cares? At some point in our lives, we will definitely run into any of those. Surely. Some of these questions sometimes do get answered over the course of various seasons. So we go through them very quickly and see if there is an answer so that we can strike it from the question list. Season 1, episode 1. It starts as it will end with a garden. 
Does it end with a garden? We don't know because season three hasn't happened yet. Episode one. How does the sobering up process work and why is it so gross? We haven't seen any other sobering up, so no answer there. Episode <gasps> three. When was the first time that the arrangement happened and what was needed for Crowley to actually convince Xerophil to do it for the first time? <laughs> Since the first time is the hardest. <laughs> Episode 3. Why does the Xerophil not speak French? And this is answered, so we may now delete it from the question list. Very begrudgingly. Yes. Episode 4. Why is the item for pestilence slash pollution a crown? Because the sword and the scale were obvious. Episode 4. Why does Crowley have a Mona Lisa sketch? Wait, we know the answer from the book. Oh, yes! Ooh, thank you. Right, sorry. Episode 4. If you want to know the answer, read the book and listen to our material. <laughs> Episode 4. Why is Crowley's first name Anthony? I don't think we have an answer for that, right? Yeah, my answer for this is it's because he loves Anthony Hopkins. No. Episode 5. When is the moment that Aziraphale lost his last fuck? Was it the conversation with Metatron? To talk to me is to talk to God. Or was it a confrontation in heaven where he is being called a coward? Episode 6. Why is this set up via flashback? Why not continue from where we left off in episode 5? Episode 6. Where did Aziraphale send the soldier at the airbase and how does he not know where he sent him? This is also answered in the book. Yes. Episode 6. Why do death and famine have the same aura color, black, and pollution and war, purple? Episode 6. Why is Wensleydale matched with famine? And why does Dog have to help him in that fight? Because in the book it's very different. Yes. Episode 6. According to IMDb, David was actually driving a burning car. True or false? You have an answer for that. Fun fact, I have mentioned earlier in this episode that we have a great book that has behind-the-scenes photographs from season 1. In fact, he was not <laughs> driving a burning car. IMD lied. IMDb lied. Shh. Shocker, shocker. No, we have a picture of the car having green markers on it Ah. to add the flames and smoke in post. So, uh, yes, this is not a real information. Thank you very much. Episode 6. What do angels get paid with? Episode 6. In the pub, Crowley can see Aziraphale, but can Aziraphale see Crowley? We had a debate. Yes, but we have no answers. No answers. For some reason, there's a repeat. Episode 6, when did Aziraphale lose his last (laughs) fuck? Let's delete this. We just found it really important. Also, the answer is he did not, apparently. Yeah, but it seemed like it. So, summoning episode 1. Did Aziraphale invent beer with the monks in Germany? I don't remember how we came up with that theory, but apparently we did. We are smart and this is real. (laughs) Summoning episode 1. Why are the them not using the items to defeat the horsemen as they did in the book? In the book, they create the items. In the show, we see the items in episode one around their camp. Was this forgotten about or what is the reason just the flaming sword was used to fight the horsemen? And I love this question. This is honestly one of my favorite questions. And it's very important because it's a weird choice that they made. And I just hearing the question again makes me angry. Yeah. Now we go into season two and because we edited these episodes quite quickly, I think we missed some of the questions. So, dear listeners, if you listen to this and you're like, wait, you forgot a question, please send us an email because there is no way in hell we are listening to our own shit again. So if you don't tell us, it's not going to be on a list. Episode two. 
Is God in good omens actually omniscient? In chapter 2, she says to Job that she can send lightning to report back to her. Why would she have need of that if she already knew everything at any time? Episode 5. Does Michael Sheen speak Chinese? Episode 5. Why isn't Nina affected as much by the ball? Episode 6. Is Muriel another memory-wiped angel? Or maybe even God? Mm-hmm. Episode 6. Is Uriel's next order of business with the cleaning roster just the next order of business or an implied coup because Gabriel is blocking Apocalypse 2.0? Very obviously, Vera and I are of different opinions here. Episode <laughs> 6. Does Crowley recognize the Metatron because he just watched the trial? Or does he recognize him because Crowley used to be a very high level of angel? listen to the beginning of this episode and only remembers other very high angels and not lower ones like Seraquiel. Episode 6. Crowley bringing back the shopkeeper's meeting dude after that person got taken by the demons. Full Lazarus, more than a Lazarus because his body got eaten, less than a Lazarus because he wasn't dead. Mm-hmm. Half a Lazarus, full Lazarus, all double Lazarus. Yeah. Basically. And that is all the questions I have written down. Yes. Like I said, if we missed any questions that we mentioned in the episode, and obviously all the questions that we made up during this episode, they will be edited when I edit this. Ha 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 Edit when we edit. Exactly. And this concludes the questionnaire for season two. And yes, it's just going to keep growing. And that's what he said. Oh, that's what he wished. <laughs> In the next segment, it's one of the last segments today. Third last. Yes, one of the last. And we will be comparing season two and season one. And to me, that's meant a few different things. It meant how do we see the energy and the feel of each season what is the difference there what is the difference as a viewing experience to me because we have known the story of season one and we have seen season one before we started covering it and what it feels like overall yeah so basically it was a very very different feel because we knew literally nothing going into this except for that one spoiler here and there that would not be really relevant to the actual story of season two especially if we compare it to season one so uh, the expectations were higher the uh, kind of what I was hoping for was there, but it was kind of all mingled together. And I don't really love planning out where it's going to go, because in case I am correct, I get disappointed. And we've talked about this when mm. we were covering the episodes, when I was trying to make my predictions. And you were agreeing with me, if it's going the way I predicted, it's going to be disappointing. Thankfully, you were cool wrong. I guessed it. I was wrong. Yay! And it wasn't disappointing at all. Oh. Speaking of wrong, I was right and I was so happy. Mm. Ah! Sorry. Look at you go. But in a way, overall, season two feels a little trivial compared to season one because we have no end times. We do not have any Armageddon to talk about. There's no Antichrist. There is only an angel that locked away his memory so he doesn't forget his love for a certain demon. And unfortunately, it's not the correct demon and the correct angel. <laughs> So, wow, shots fired. The particular happy ending that we get is aimed at different characters, which is a, a little sad. <sighs> wow. It kind of feels like 
season two was a setup for season three. Exposition! Which, don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed it. I did. I really loved watching it. I really loved the pain. <laughs> I really loved the joy and all of the stuff. But it doesn't feel like its own story arc, yep. which season one most certainly was. Yeah, standalone is very, very different. Yeah. From that point of view, that was the biggest difference. The stakes felt like they were going to be harder. The... <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's been a while, eh? The stakes felt like they were going to be higher than in season one, but ended up kind of dissolving into nothingness. There wasn't actual danger of full destruction, only destruction of our hearts. Only individual destruction with the Book of Life, not destruction yeah. of the entirety of creation. Which we have kind of guessed that there would be because of the everyday it's a getting closer yeah. situation. We were waiting which for had completely zero else. meaning. Yeah. Well I mean it didn't have no meaning but it had a very different it meaning. It was their song. Yeah, which is sweet and beautiful, but it's not menacing. And we expected menace. Menace. So, there. Those are my thoughts. Thus are your thoughts. Yes. Well, then followeth shall my thoughteth. I don't speak <laughs> medieval English, I'm sorry. Well, you do now. I apologize for this short monologue because I had too much time while I was on my airplane traveling and this is what happens when I have too much time I feel like season one was fun and lightheartedness despite or maybe because of being about the end of the world season two was an introspective of our husband's relationship their pasts and their priorities and it ended with more pain than if the world had actually ended I've come across conflicting information when it comes to what if anything was written prior by Terry when it comes to season two. I'm also not really familiar with Pratchett's work, aside from Good Omens the book, but to me it felt like season two was way more Gaiman than Pratchett. And while I love Neil's work, I am not quite sure how I feel about that. I am so curious about season three because despite being fully packed, season two was mostly exposition and preparation for season three, just like you said. It was not standalone, so to say, like season one was because Good Omens the book already stood for and by itself. Also, season one had less focus on the husbands while still having a lot more than the book. And it gave us a bigger world in a sense. The other characters this season feel less fleshed out, are given less time and are ultimately all less, if at all, relevant. Also in season one, the actions of the husbands were pretty much irrelevant until the very end. This time, from the instant Aziraphale took in Gabriel, every action by either of them became relevant, coming to a literal finale in Aziraphale taking on the job of Gabriel and potentially bringing about the second coming. In a way, season two feels a bit like very good fanfiction. It's a, <laughs> let's look at the past of our favorite characters while also making the stakes a lot more personal. Even Crowley's apparent power-up works well within that because nothing in either season one or the book gave me the impression that he was that high up on the Order of Angels. Stepping away from the story itself, season two seems to be even more detailed than season one, with uncountable amounts of tiny nods and references to season one, the book, Terry and Neil themselves. 
I also feel like the marketing for this season was a lot more active than in season one. But maybe that is just because we covered season two in the moment as it came out and not after a good while. Speaking of covering it, the last time we had both seen the whole season before and we both had read the book before. So there were no big twists or surprises for us. This time we went as blind as possible and we also didn't binge the whole thing. I am not quite sure if I'm willing to not binge a season three. On the other hand, I'm pretty sure my appreciation and judgment of each episode would have been heavily influenced by knowing the ending. So we shall see. Eh? 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 <laughs> well, that leads us into another part. And this is going to be as wild as it gets. Oh, I'm so curious what we you wrote are, down. We are working with nothing. We're working with assumptions. And you know what assuming stands for? As something you, about me. butts. Woo. Yeah, something about butts. I have written down things. I have wrote down things. How, how many predictions do you have? I have written down things. I didn't point them. I just wrote them as a text. I have not. And I have gotten through a wall, I mean, it's a relatively small wall of text. And I end with a little note of something that I know that I'm not the only person who suggested this and may or may not have been mentioned around here already. Okay, so you go through it and I will see if you have any predictions. No, if... Any of my predictions are missing in your predictions. Okay, so I think that we will see Israfel struggle with his new assignment. That's very clear. We will see Crowley hurt and trying to move on and Orm burn the world down around him. Not <laughs> literally. I don't think he's going to literally try to burn the world. But I feel like with his only interest in the world gone, he's going to get a little wild. Mm -hmm. And I am curious where David Tennant's going to bring this because I feel like there is a lot of potential and a lot of sides of Crowley that we have not explored yet. And... The reason we haven't is because Zerfel was around and now he's not. Now, I obviously think Zerfel will realize that he made a mistake because the system cannot be changed. The system is wrong. Evil. And not wrong. it is evil and it needs to be taken down completely. Capitalism. And he will realize that he can't do that without Crowley and he doesn't want to do it without Crowley. Oh. So he will use this as an excuse, the fact that he can't really do it without him, to try to get Crowley involved in mm -hmm. taking down the system. Well, how he's going to do that is another thing. We have talked about a certain Bloody Marys, I mean, um, <laughs> Ave Marias or uh, Hail Marys. <laughs> He's going to have to do and the apology dances that he's going to have to dance over and over and over again in circles and ops, ovals around Crowley. I really hope for they drink Bloody Marys next season just because it would be fucking hilarious. That would be pretty great. I mean, that would be prediction out of yes. the last field, wouldn't it? So uh, I don't really have exact idea how the apology is going to go, but he's going to have to find the back channels. And <laughs> I imagine he would connect through the back channels. You, you do hear yourself when you talk, right? <laughs> With Crowley. <laughs> Did it not register what you were writing down when you were writing it down? Nope. Okay. Nope. Nope. It's been so a while, basically, eh? we know Michael is the back channel guy. <laughs> As you call him the black ops guy, but also the back channel guy. So I think that 
Zurafel will use the fact that Michael is pissed off at the Metatron because the Metatron humiliated him in front of people and in front of Uriel and in front of everybody that he will use his back channels <laughs> to try to contact Crowley and take the Metatron down. So uh, they will realize that they can't reach God and they will have to figure out how to find her. So and where that is brings God? me very nicely to the theory of Luriel. You, like, seriously, this, that part landed in the bonus, so our patrons already know this, and if you paid attention when we went through the questionnaire, I also very, very quickly mentioned it. Maybe I delete it, and so this will be the first mention, just because, <laughs> like, <laughs> because I was going through, like, emotional analysis and la 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 la. And then Vero goes, Lena, do you think... I, was, I, I didn't have any space, so I said, no, let me think about it, but not now. <laughs> so, this See, is amazing. Go. I'm pretty sure that this is a theory that is out there, because I know somebody in the Discord mentioned it today, uh, out of our patrons, that they have seen this theory kind of knock around. Really? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Root. I was like, this makes complete sense because it came to me when you started talking about deleting memories and Gabriel with wiped memory being created, and being put down under Muriel. And there's nobody really else who is under Muriel, which we learn. And the train of thought was, well, how did Muriel get there? Oh, uh, Eleanor mentioned that in the Discord. I kind of completely missed that. And... The idea behind that is, well, the only explanation for Muriel being this low is that they were placed there after a memory wipe. And because we are missing God from this season and she has not been around at all, what if Muriel is just deleted God? Yes, we know that they claim that they have been working in the uh, recording office for recording for thousands of years or whatever, millennia. But if they don't remember... It will seem like forever. The question is, first of all, it could be that it may seem like forever because they've been alone for that time. But if heaven can wipe memory, who is to say that they can't create memory? So what if they place the memory of working because for thousands Gabriel and millennia? Gabriel didn't get wiped. He just removed his memory. But if they had exactly. proper wiped him, then maybe they could have done more. Yes, that is the idea. So we don't know if Muriel's memory of working in records for millennia is real. So what if the Metatron decided that he wants the great plan to be proceeding without a hitch and without being affected by the ineffable plan mm. and somehow managed to wipe God and place her into the spot of Muriel? Mm. And that would explain why... They are so childish and so simple. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. Does that conclude your predictions? That is me for today. Good. My predictions for season three. So you already, obviously, made the biggest, the best one. I don't care if it's out there. You made it first. I don't care about <laughs> any other timing. Muriel is God, period. But I have another Muriel prediction because Muriel is in charge of the bookshop. And my prediction is because nobody bothered to teach Muriel about the process of selling items, Muriel will just be giving away books. Oh my god, no. You know? Poor Zarafel. Yes. 
And I know I just said poor Israfil after shitting on him for the last 50,000 hours, but... I mean, today there was more space for Israfil, so I hope our listeners understand that we're not just pro-Crowley and anti-Israfil anymore. (laughs) Hopefully they will forgive us. But I do see that because like nobody took the time to explain it and I don't think Muriel will learn the process of shopkeeping Mm -hmm. properly. Like if they sell the books, it's going to be for like ridiculously low amounts of money, like Mm -hmm. one book or something you know or one pound sorry we're in England so that is my prediction for the bookshop mm-hmm. I am with you that Aziraphale will not do great in his new position and I want to expand on that that Aziraphale not doing great in this position will not come as a surprise for Metatron in fact he will have planned for that like this is gonna be part of the great plan mm-hmm. I think quite opposite to your prediction that Azerfell is not going to use Michael's back channels but that there is going to be a lot of headbutting between Azerfell and Michael but as a but as a but wow because I think that Michael is taking it personal that Aziraphale is taking the position that he was interested in. Mm-hmm. And so he will literally not follow a single order Aziraphale does or gives. And so mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of tension. And I don't think there's any chance that Michael will help Aziraphale in any way, shape or form. That is very interesting. I think this will depend on uh, will Michael aim his anger at the Metatron or at Aziraphale. Aziraphale is easier and safer. So And Michael, when it comes to it, is a coward. So I say Aziraphale. That is very true. I say Crowley will go through a period of extremely harsh depression. I don't think mm-hmm. he's going to... I don't think Crowley is going to set the world on fire in any way. I think he's going to be drunk a lot. I think he's going to be sad a lot. And I think he's going to be alone a lot. No. And I think it's going to be very painful for us. Because, I mean, yes, this episode was more understanding when it comes to Zerofel. But yeah, we are... It- we are... On the Crowley site. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that we understand doesn't erase the hurt. That's the thing. I get people being protective of Aziraphale, but I'm protective of Crowley. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of more here for that. But speaking of Crowley, I also think that we will learn a lot more about Crowley's past as an angel. Because I think Aziraphale is going to look into the behind the scenes I didn't think of that and that is amazing and my, my mind is blown. So I, I think that is how we are going to learn more about Crowley's past as an angel because Aziraphale, especially in the beginning, is still going to try to find a way to turn Crowley into an angel. And the easiest approach is understand the angel he was. Mm-hmm. So that is my interpretation for that. I don't think that we will meet an actual Jesus character. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that the second coming will progress to that point that we get a Jesus. And obviously the second coming will fail just as the previous apocalypse has failed. And it will be foiled by the reunited husbands. I don't know how how they are going to be reunified, but they will be reunified, reunited, whatever the fucking word is. We'll, We'll see how the reunification goes. And I don't want to just talk about heaven. I also want to mention hell because, in my opinion, Shax will definitely become a new Duke of Hell. And I think that Dagon will actually take over for Beelzebub. And Dagon was very gun-ho for any kind of war and conflict. So I actually think that hell might be an issue in the next season. Because Beelzebub was a very tempered, controlled leader of hell and Dagon is not and I don't see anyone else taking over Beelzebub's job aside from Mm. Dagon well that but also we know for a fact that 
Shaxx isn't great at leading. No, Shaxx is going to be entertaining. So that's going to be as a duke of hell as a duke of hell but she will not rise quickly enough to replace Belzebub themselves no 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 so, no that's not what i mean yeah. but it's the duke of hell still means like so, some sort of a leadership yeah but not decision making leadership and if dagon is the one making the choices and the decisions and the actions i think there is going to be a problem those are my predictions let's see how it runs out and this concludes our predictions for season three. we now only have one last thing to go through after five hours of actually recording who knows how long the episode is going to be in the end how much is going to be bonus how much is going to be deleted but let's wrap this up right mm-hmm. fuck yeah let me go to sleep The last segment is the future of Taut. What does the future hold for us? So most importantly, as you might already have noticed, we're back to bi-weekly because this episode comes out two weeks after episode six. Because what it was sensible to release weekly, this is not our life. We both have very demanding full-time jobs and way too time-consuming hobbies. So we go back to bi-weekly. The next few episodes are already done and scheduled. So after this, you get beautiful episodes for Stardust, the book. After Stardust, we will be covering more Neil Gaiman. Who could have seen that coming? When we started this, we had no plans of being a Neil Gaiman podcast, but it kind of happened. And so this is our life now. So after Stardust, we will be doing Coraline because Vero has neither seen nor read Coraline. I have done both. So finally, we have a situation where one of us knows everything and one of us knows nothing. I am super fucking curious because everything I know about Coraline is it's a children's story. Hmm. I'm not going to say it. anything. That's all I know. We're going to cover the movie first and then we're going to cover the book. And all of that should bring us to about the end of the year. We have not fully decided what show we are going to do next. If we can't come up with anything, we will be doing The Sandman because we need to be doing The Sandman and we haven't done it yet. And it makes sense. But if by any chance there are more updates on other shows that we're waiting on, we might start with something else. But we will keep you posted. Basically, if you want to have a say or a suggestion to what we will cover after this, you need to become a patron Hmm. and yell at us in the Discord. Because that's what we read, that's what we listen to, and that's about it. Yeah, and to finish all of this up at some undefined point in the future maybe in between all of this maybe after this who fucking knows I don't know my own name sometimes there will be another shut up about that show double episode because there was a situation in the discord where Vero and I had let's call it a small disagreement and because Lina is wrong no because Vero doesn't know what she's talking about I decided that the easiest way to settle this is with having Vero pick three episodes of that show that supposedly prove her point and then me using these three episodes to disprove her point. So that is going to be a thing. And obviously it can't be that Vero has a show that she needs to prove something about and I don't. So I'm going to think of something and I will force another show upon 
the vero. Uh, the vero is ready. No, you won't be. I don't know yet what I'm giving you, but it will be grant. And this actually is it. This is the summoning <gasps> episode for season two of Good Omens. With this, we say thank you. We say thank you for sticking with us for this long. If you made it all the way, please let us know. We appreciate it. Congratulations. We are incredibly appreciative for the huge amount of new listeners that have found us. We love you guys. Thank you so much. It is absolutely wild to us. And we hope you enjoy all of our other stuff now that we are done with Good Omens for the moment. And please don't forget to send us your opinions. Even if we already recorded this, we still love to hear from you. So yes. you can find us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, which is Forever Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. And you can now newly find us on Blue Sky as well as the Apple of Truth. Or you can just old school send us an email at goodomens at T-A-O-T minus podcast dot com. Look at that beautiful amount of ways to contact us. So don't be shy. You know we're not. Never. And you will hear us at the next episode. Bye! Bye. Thank you.